KOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, August the 3rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, he's produced the program, so let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. All right, so yet another edition of the Royal St. John's Regatta is in the books, the 205th running, pardon me. Big crowds yesterday down around the pond. Good news, the rain held off, which was a worry, I'd imagine, for some vendors, given it's one of their biggest days of fundraising, but good stuff. Let's talk about the champions. So the men's race kicked off the championship season last night with fine strokes, plaster, and painting. They win the men's championship race, a time of 9.15. Capital Home Hardware second, followed by NTV, which were the two-time defending champions. Then East Coast Kia and Andrew McDonald, general contracting, who made the championship. Congratulations to all hands. In the, interesting, I heard Brian Medor speaking to the happy couple. So one of the members of the uh, Capital Home Hardware team, a fellow named Brad White, proposed to his partner Dana right there. At the, on the shores of Kitty Pitty after the championship race, she said yes. So good for them. Anyway, that's great stuff. On the women's side, four years in a row for high high flow Drolic. They are the women's champions with a time of 510, followed by Don Burke and then Smith Stockley, legendary Smith Stockley, Noonan Piercy, and the Cal Group. Just for context, now they're wicked fast times. On the men's side, the record was set in 2007 by Crosby Industrial with a blazing 851.32. I actually called that race on Rogers Television. It was amazing to watch. And on the women's side, I believe the record, I should have looked it up, I suppose. Uh, in 2018, the record was set by M5, 456.10. That was in a morning row. They beat the long-standing record that was set by to Oz FM back in 2003. It was 456.70. So there you go, the champs are... In the books, congratulations. Interesting rowing note was on this date in 1852. America's first intercollegiate sporting event took place as the Harvard Rowing Crew beat Yale by two lengths over two miles on Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. How about that for some rowing stuff? All right. So I've had a couple of listeners bemoan the fact that when we give some shout-outs to local athletes and local teams, and regardless if we're talking scholastic issues, what have you, when we have some good news to talk about, you feed me the info. I'm happy to relay it to the listener. This one's about the UFC, Mixed Martial Arts. I've watched a bit of it. It's hugely popular when we talk about an international audience, and we do indeed have a UFC competitor from this province, Gavin Tucker. Born and raised in St. Anthony, he signed on with the UFC back in 2017 has a pretty impressive record and so he's been toiling in and around that sport for a while his last fight didn't go his way he got knocked out early in the first round but he's back on the card for the upcoming UFC in Nashville 2023 takes place tomorrow evening at the Bridgestone Arena in Nashville Tennessee he's a featherweight he's taken on a Brazilian guy and so congratulations go get him Gavin Tucker so again it's not picking and choosing what sports or athletes we give a shout out to because if you want to bring me the info we will bring it to you okay so there we go good luck to Gavin Tucker coming back from his last defeat in the UFC and Blair Bursey of course a professional golfer from Grand Falls Windsor he's back at it on PGA Tour Canada last week had a good week tied for sixth place this week he's going up in the Windsor Championship so he's having a pretty decent stretch in the last couple of weeks after I think what he would admit would be a disappointing spring down in Latin America. So go get him to Mr. Bercy as well. All right. 
So for the second straight day, home heating fuels are up both furnace oil up 3.27 cents, stove oil up the same amount. Uh, you know, we can always talk about the carbon tax bill. We had a lady called yesterday about her oil bill and breaking down the taxes associated with it. So for the $500 oil rebate check she got, she only got about 380 bucks worth of oil. You know, and the rest of it was carbon tax and HST applied to it. And now the price of gas up again today, 6.2 cents per liter. It's about a buck 87 on the Avalon Peninsula. Diesel up 3.8 cents, 3.6 cents at Lab West and Churchill Falls. So where does it end? I don't know. You want to take on all the complexities associated with that? Let's do exactly that. All right. Stick with the roads. So apparently there's been a rollout in the first step of the process of consolidating some 60 private ambulance and public ambulance contracts. We know this is a great idea. Now, the government did indeed go out and try to hire a consultant to come in and make sure we get it right. And of course, getting it right is important. But I think people justifiably question whether or not all the money spent on consultants is actually necessary, given what you would hope would be the brain power and the horsepower in the various departments between the ministers and senior bureaucrats and the entirety of their staff. But anyway, that's the move. And one of the first steps is the implication of the EPCR. So it's been happening on the Avalon Peninsula. We're now on board the ambulance. As opposed to paper medical records, they will have access to your digital record. So instantaneous, all the information right at the fingertips makes sense, and it's a good first step forward, but it would be nice to know where the province is. And it's one thing for me and you to want to know the status of the consolidation process. But we know the stories that have been dogging paramedics in this province, whether it be the disparity between the public and the private sector for hours on call, hours work, disparity in pay. There's been a lot to it, but the EPCR, okay, we'll talk about that. This one, all right. So I've told you in the past that there's a group that fairly frequently send me a gentle prod via email to talk about an issue of importance to them. And that's the concept of the fixed link. Okay, so this is an old idea. Well, I don't know if that's the right way to put it. It dates all the way back to it being floated by then-Premier Joey Smallwood. Then it's been some uptick in the recent past. There was a formal report done in 2004. Then Hatch Engineering was brought in in 2018 to look at the cost of construction and some of the forecasts about the economic upside. And you know whether or not light traffic and or commercial traffic would avail of the fixed link. Let's get into some of the numbers. So they've now brought in a new engineering group, and this is after the federal liberals. They said that they considered it a nation-building exercise, put it in the hands of the Canada Infrastructure Bank, who then partnered with this province, the provincial government, to conduct the most recent study to the tune of some half a million dollars. So Arup is the new engineering company that's been brought in here. Okay. When Hatch had a look at it in 18, they said that the 18-kilometer rail tunnel would cost about $1.675 billion. Arup now says that the cost will be $4.8 billion. So huge disconnect there. And then you talk about some of the other issues surrounding the construction and the usage of. Hatch said it'd take about 12 years to construct. Arab says it'd take about 14 years now to complete. Then it comes down to operating costs and the revenue side. Arab, the new engineering company, said the tunnel would require about $20 million in operating costs, but they only estimated $9 million in estimated revenues. So a tag of $10 million of operating costs lost per year. 
Not necessarily what Hatch had to say. So who's right or wrong? I don't know. But Hatch said the estimated traffic would raise $45 million annually in revenue between light vehicle traffic and commercial vehicles. Very much different what's coming from Arab. Hatch says the tunnel would serve 162,000 passenger vehicles per year and 244,000 commercial vehicles per year. The new company, Arab, estimates that only 118,000 passenger vehicles and 27,200 commercial vehicles per year. They go on to talk about the time shaved off for travel. If you're coming from Quebec City to Newfoundland, you shave two, two hours off by taking the tunnel versus Marine Atlantic. Coming from Winnipeg, save about an hour. But coming from Halifax or Boston, a slightly longer trip to avail of the tunnel versus the existing ferry, they'd add into it what needs to be done to accommodate whatever level, level of uh, vehicle traffic would be, commercial or otherwise. So there needs to be some relationship, and work is ongoing on Quebec's Highway 138 along the North Shore. But that cost has a price tag of some $3 billion for its ultimate completion. Then it doesn't even include what would need to be done and an updated uh, highway system on the Great Northern Peninsula to accommodate whatever uptick in traffic there would be. So there are some of the new numbers coming from, from Arup and then compare and contrast to the numbers coming from Hatch. But yet, it's still on the portfolio and in the mandate letters for the federal minister responsible. It's still in the hands of the Canada Infrastructure Bank. So they haven't abandoned it, even though these numbers aren't what they were just some years back, you know, 2018 to 2023 from one. 1.675 billion to 4.8 billion dollars for the completion so it's obviously a big topic and for those people in labrador or on the great northern peninsula or on the southwest coast or on the west coast they think that this is the best idea you know can you try to square a circle where let's say arapers right and there would be potential for 10 million dollars of loss each year based on what they forecast to be the usage of commercial and light vehicle travel what would that mean for the toll? So I guess, you know, next steps, depending on how much these things cost and whether or not it's inside the $500 million mandate, a $500,000 study that the province and the, C, uh, the Canadian Infrastructure Bank are doing, is, you know, what does the market say? Who's interested in building it? What's their business model look like? What would a proposed toll look like to cover the potential for $10 million of loss in operations each year? So anyway, I know people want to talk about it, and I'm happy to take it forward. Those numbers, not as encouraging as they were in 18, but I'm sure there's an argument coming from some corners of the province that is still the right thing to do. And stick it with Labrador. I don't know why. I suppose for all the obvious life and, de life and death reasons, every time Labrador pops into my head, I still wonder when the federal liberals are going to wrap their mind around the fact that, you know, it's one thing to expand and to invest in Five Wing Goose Bay, but the additional search and rescue capacity that's lacking woefully in Labrador needs to be addressed. And on that front, search and rescue calls are up and way up and a concerning trend, so says Roger Gooby, who's the executive director with the Newfoundland and Labrador Search and Rescue Association. Okay. So they have responded to seven callouts so far this year. Five of them are water-related. And the real dismaying and tragic piece of that story is even when they respond to a water-related incident that ends up being a fatal drowning, first thing they encounter is a life jacket just floating around. We know the law coming from Transport Canada says that you have to have a life vest or a life jacket available for every passenger. But the unfortunate part of that law and the shortcoming is they don't mandate that you wear it. So you use it for a cushion under your tushy to sit on the, uh, the boat and don't have to put it on. 
which of course then renders it useless if you are abruptly tossed into the water. So we're hoping to speak with Mr. Goob today just for some of the fundamentals and reminders about, you know, the perils of just enjoying the great outdoors. Recreational activities are all intended to be fun, nice getaway, a nice mental break, bit of exercise possibly, but some of the instances with the uptick in search and rescue calls are concerning, says Mr. Gooby. We're hoping to make time with him this morning. Had an interesting call from the director of uh, visitor experience on Grossmore Park yesterday. There were concerns voiced about accessibility. And as a result, this gentleman, Rob Hinkson, I believe was his name, he called the program First Things First and what I thought was absolutely the right way to handle it, the pragmatic opportunity to apologize. You know, it's far too often, big organizations like Parks Canada, different levels of government, they will deflect and tiptoe and tap dance around these things, not so much coming from Parks Canada, an apology, and acknowledging that there was incorrect information shared with potential visitors to Gross Morn. And it was about the accessibility issues going up and down the path to Western Brook Pond, something that everyone should do at least once in your life, majestic part of the province, majestic part of the world. So they are dealing with it on a large scale right across the country, our Parks Canada, and good on them. And then in the news today is a reminder from Parks Canada to don't feed the wildlife. wildlife. It's long been the rally cry. People talk about it all the time, rightfully so. You know, it does single out the foxes on Signal Hill. You know, when you feed the wildlife to become reliant on humans, maybe detracts from their ability to hunt for themselves and consequently the ability to teach their young how to hunt, then it's bringing them the close proximity to human beings, which puts them at further peril, whether it be struck by a vehicle or whatever the case may be. And you know, and even what some people choose to feed the foxes, say for instance, Signal Hill, with great pleasure, people were posting photographs and videos of the foxes being fed fat peels or uh, timbits. You know, don't think that's a normal part of the fox's diet, a few timbits, but anywho, let's take it on. All right, what do I got here? Let's go to healthcare here for a second. We've spoken to many a psychologist over the recent past about psychology in the province, about the vacancies, and what it means for even new trainees or graduates from psychology programs. All right, here are the numbers obtained through access to information. In uh, the eastern region alone, there are 28 vacant clinical psychology positions, central five vacancies, western has six, Labrador Grenfell has two. There's been a lot of money dangled to try to incentivize people to come to the province to work as healthcare professionals, including psychologists. So remember back in January, the province said that any born and raised and trained clinical psychologists offer $50,000 in recruitment incentives for a three-year return and service agreement. Non-residents were offered $25,000 for the same arrangement. So over 100 or around 100 healthcare professionals took the offer. Psychologists only make up a fraction. There has been three new hires, an overall increase, pardon me, an overall increase of three new hires, two in Eastern, one in Western. I guess the good news in here, even though there's a ton of vacancies, is that it looks like the mass exodus has stopped. Because that's the problem. You know, even when you speak to the Registered Nurses Union and or uh, umbrella associations representing whether it be nurse practitioners or registered nurses or doctors or any other healthcare discipline, is people focus on recruitment. But if we don't stop the bleeding and deal with the retention, then we're simply going to be chasing our tail, backfilling day after day, year after year. So the mass exodus looks to have stopped. Good. 
But this also screams is that obviously money is not the be all and end all for everybody working in healthcare, or I would imagine not the be all and end all for anybody working in any area, any arena, or any industry. Yes, it's important, and yes, money makes the world go round. But when we, like yesterday, talked about the fact that 750,000-ish fewer procedures done in surgeries, 18 million hours of overtime work between 2020 and 2022, there is a burnout issue that has not been able to be addressed by money. So again, if you're a psychologist listening to the program and or a psychiatric nurse for which we're entering a pilot program, you know, how do we actually deal with those tangential issues, important as they are? Our work-life balance, being content, being happy, not being burnt out. I'm sure it comes with a full complement of staff, and some of that can be dealt with with remuneration, but not all of it. So it's fine for people to talk about, well, how much money are we getting paid? And how do we negotiate a new collective bargaining agreement? Most of which is based on the rate of pay, vacation days, sick days, and some processes or parameters inside grievances and those types of things. But does that actually get to the brass tacks for dealing with the issues? So... Three vacancies, net increase inside the world of psychologists. Anyway, I want to take it on. Let's go. Some people say that the summer's over after the regatta. I'm not one. Summer's still in full swing. But what else is in full swing is preparations for school. <laughs> Nobody wants to talk about it in August, but here we go. You know, I've been repeatedly asked to keep on the front burner things about trying to give children to equip or arm children with some of the recognition of the red flags and warnings and issues regarding their body safety. And yes, there's a body safety program coming in a pilot form in select few schools as opposed to the entirety of the K-12 system. Yes, there's some overlap with current curriculum regarding what to be aware of, what to do when you see the signs. But there's really a very flimsy argument as to why that's not going to be implemented in full across the entirety of K-12. Age-appropriate, of course. It's been test-driven elsewhere. It's been proven to be beneficial. And they say, well, it comes with training you know, concerns. The price tag for the curriculum is meager, $25,000 or so. And they say, well, we need the time to train the teachers in. There's a full slate of professional development days. I think they still call them PD days or professional learning days where maybe just maybe prioritizing the safety of children can be accommodated by one of those PD or PL days, whatever they call them these days. So we'll put that out there. Also, and I'm sure this is a worry for some parents, maybe not all, but certainly for some, is in other jurisdictions, they have had a careful look at the curriculum and the fits and starts inside education during the pandemic and what that's meant for the preparation of your child to move from grade to grade. In this province and the concept of learning loss, we haven't attended to it at all. Not because I say so, because we had a recent interview with the Minister of Education, the new minister, Crystalline Howell. They haven't had a formal process. So whether that be the prep that you need to do at home to ensure your child is ready for the next grade, and most importantly, when they get out of the K-12 system, I mean, if you're lagging behind now, that only gets worse as years and uh, grades go by. Then what? But we haven't grappled with it. We have no real idea what we're doing on that front. So anyway, maybe it's a concern of mine and maybe for few, but I think it should be a concern for all. Uh, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? I wanted to talk about the NLC with a new chair and a vice chair, and then, of course, take that the next step to what that means inside the Green Report. Then the concept of meta, uh, Facebook and Instagram, blocking Canadian news. We should dig into that a little further because that's being misconstrued and mislabeled in many arenas, many corners. But the ham-fisted approach that the federal government is taking is just 
ridiculous. There's a better way to do things. There's lessons that can be learned, especially from the country of Australia, where they went down the exact same road. They gave wiggle room for negotiation. It worked out. And the whole thing is about being designated. Here's the problem. And now, it's one thing to decide with the liberals or the conservatives or whatever the case may be, but big tech is not your friend. They're just not. And I don't care what party you support. Facebook says the, loud, the quiet part out loud. Their worry is not just about having to pay a fee in Canada or in Australia. Their worry is that when it becomes enshrined in legislation, it becomes the law, they think the next thing's going to happen is it's going to happen in the UK. It's going to happen in the United States because a precedent has been set. So they're not picking apart a few million dollars here in these multi-billion dollar companies. They're worried about themselves and themselves alone. Yes, the ham-fisted approach the federal liberals are taking has been misguided, but come on. Big tech is nobody's friend, except for big tech. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone and join us, just like Roger Gooby from the NL Search and Rescue Association. He's the executive director. We'll talk about the surge and the uptick in calls. And then Wendy's in the queue to talk about veterinarian bills. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, I'm not sure exactly what I've said. I'm pretty convinced I misspoke, though. I'll talk about the number of call-outs from the Search and Rescue Group. It's since last Saturday since they've had these seven call-outs. Join us on line number one is the executive director of the NL Search and Rescue Association. That's Roger Gooby. Good morning, Roger. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. So there's always going to be the need, for better or worse, for a search and rescue capacity. And the, the good work you folks do cannot be underestimated. But seeing some concerning trends, what are you seeing? Well, I'd say since Saturday, uh, well, I can say my news story yesterday said seven. Well, today's news story is up to eight because we had another one in the Ghouls area yesterday. So, you know, the trend, it's uh, turning. Uh, you know, the concerning part that we've seen uh, in these uh, eight callouts that we had in the past few days, uh, five of them has been uh, water-related. And, uh, you know, that's concerning that uh, certainly with the warm weather that we're experiencing, that, uh, you know, people want to get out and enjoy it, but uh, people need to be mindful and do it in a, a safe manner too as well. When we go out to have a bit of fun, sometimes the fun gets out in front of some very basic approaches to being safe. Now, whether it be uh, alcohol or drugs, but the one thing that always aggravates me is the law surrounding flotation devices for life jackets. You're mandated to have one per person on whatever type of water vessel, but you don't have to wear them. What do you see when you go to some of these water-related events regarding life jackets that are simply bobbing around, around the scene of a tragedy? Yeah, the mo most concerning thing and the frustrating thing for that I I've seen personally over the, the number of years that I've been involved in search and rescue is, is most times when we go to a scene, we see the flotation device uh, floating on the surface. And, uh, you know, is our first indication then that we're into a tragedy at the scene. And, you know, these devices, uh, they're designed, uh, you know, to protect the person, to, uh, you know, enable them to float. But... It only works if it's worn properly and to size to the person that's wearing it. And, you know, a lot of cases, uh, people come to realization that, oh, it can't happen to me, but uh, it only takes a second and a wrong move into a, a watercraft and you're in the water. And, uh, you know, we, we live in Newfoundland. It's not the tropical waters uh, around us. And the waters always do have a chill into them. And, uh, you know, it's always concern. It's always, uh, you know, we stress when we get out in presentations to the public that, uh, you know, these devices uh, work and they're designed to work. 
but they had to be worn. And it's frustrating with the, the laws is out there. Stress is a good word because the chilly water, even if you're in a very small pond, it does bring a bit of a stress and a shock to the system where even some of the best swimmers, when you experience that body stress, all of a sudden that great front crawl you have in the pool in the backyard is not there and out in the cold water. No, certainly not. And, uh, you know, I, I always stress every time I see anyone uh, on the water without the PFD, I always you know, the realization that, just take a moment and you know think about what can happen and think about your family and loved ones that's left behind and uh, you know when we get to scenes and we see these tragedies and then we see the tragedies on the other side of the family and what they're struggling with uh, at the moment and after the fact so uh, you know please be mindful and certainly you know it is a good idea to to wear it I know people who are volunteers inside your search and rescue world, and bravo for them for what they do. But let's say you come upon something where someone has just lost hiking in the woods, and you find them, but they're, they've passed. Or you respond to a scene where there's been a drowning. What type of training do your members get for, you know, prior to encountering these grave situations and supports in the aftermath? You know, that's one of the big uh, things that uh, you know we put in came from the the inquiry is the mental health part and you know we got a thousand plus volunteers uh, 30 teams across Newfoundland and Labrador and you know these are all volunteers they take the time out of their you know their busy lives their work schedules their family lives and you know they, they deal with these tragedies that we encounter you know uh, all the time and uh, you know we we gone more into trying to get more in depth into mental health training for our members and you know it's a big thing that's on our forefront right now is the mental health because uh, you know these are not everyday occurrence that you walk in the street and see but you know our members you know we do our training prior to but you know when we get into these situations it's always you know you got to be mindful of your members and you got to look out to the mental health and the well-being of your members as volunteering. Yeah, more money for search and rescue for uh, programs and services like that. New, modern, updated equipment and some training for said equipment. So good work being done there, even though there's still some gaps in search and rescue. Mostly I'm talking about uh, federally funded search and rescue, especially in Labrador. I know they've developed a bunch of groups on the ground in Labrador. Really good work being done there. But we still got to make sure that we get this right. Last one. And this, Roger, sometimes it, I don't know if it makes me feel like I'm rolling my eyes or maybe the listeners are rolling theirs, but some of the basics for, you know, being safe and letting people know where you're going, have an opportunity to be found. We keep saying it. It sounds like the most fundamental thing, but every year we hear the same stories where people, they don't even know where to start looking. So I guess we have to do it. Give some of the basics and the advice for folks who not only tell people where you're going, but some ways to ensure that you have a better chance of being found if you're lost. Yeah, and I can say, you know, there is some programs that we have the Adventure Spark uh, app out there that you can download for free. Uh, you fill in the information of, uh, you know, your your personal information, who's with you, uh, where you're gone, what time you expect to give you back. And then you put in some contact for the, you know, people that you want this message to go to if you don't return home. But, you know, even to, you know, scribble down on a piece of paper in your car, leaving the dash or at home on your kitchen table or tell your wife or your husband or whoever your, you know, a friend or whatever, this is where I'm going. 
and stick to your plan because, you know, most times when we get a call, uh, you know, they're gone to a certain area, but that area is quite huge. And, you know, the more precise area we know, the quicker we can respond. And if you're in trouble, the quicker we can get to you. Roger, keep up the good work. Appreciate the time. Anything else you'd like to say before we say goodbye? No, I just uh, like I say just put out there that uh, you know NLSR is uh, putting uh, hosting a national conference in St. John's uh, in September the 14th to the 17th. We have a solo conference, uh, over 400 delegates uh, with some great presentations, and uh, you know brings our members together and be able to get them you know better trained for what we do. Good to have you on, Roger. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Patty. All the best. Bye-bye. Roger Gooby is the Executive Director of the NL Search and Rescue Association. Break time. Wendy, you stay right there. We're going to talk about their veterinarian bills. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Wendy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay, thanks. How about you? I'm doing great. I uh, I, wa- I was thinking yesterday. You know, I had a I had a vet appointment, and first of all, I would love to say that this isn't about the vet bills per se, because I have every confidence in the vet that I take my animal to, my dog. They're great. They've been great for the 16 years that I've had him, and he's still kicking. He's still doing well. Uh, as I was coming home yesterday after, you know, bill for the vaccines and flea treatment, because who the hell wants fleas, um, I looked at the tax amount. The tax amount. This is what this is about this morning. Okay. And it was $47. And there was nothing really extraordinary about the bill. And I, I don't, you know, this is not questioning, you know, vet services and stuff, because, I mean, I... They go through a massive amount of training to be specialized in every kind of animal. So, you know, I just wondered why we have to have taxes on things like this. Because, uh, I mean, a lot of people would say that having an animal is your own personal choice. And to a degree, that is true. But I also think about, you know, the joy that animals bring people and the comfort and you know when people have companion animals and you know it's it's like their children and it you know brings them happiness but the downside of that then is you know the cost associated and uh when when you think about all the things that are adding up when you do go to vet clinics just for you know routine checkups to make sure your pet is healthy and any vaccines they need any medication my sister has a dog and he needs heart medication she does sorry and my daughter has a couple animals and they need allergy shots so you know there's a lot more to it than people realize until you own an animal and uh like even you know when animals have to have surgeries is a stressful time but just just looking at that bill yesterday and i said you know is there any need to have taxes on medical procedures and even food for pets? A lot of people are just going check to check and not people in the lower income area. Also, you know, the middle class, we're all going check to check as well, a good, a good few of us. And I thought, you know, like, really, if I expect to pay taxes 
when I go and get services for myself. If I go to a restaurant, if I get my hair done, if I go to the movies, buy new clothes, take a trip, that's all choices I make for my own self, my own benefit. But when I'm looking after an animal, you know, and making sure they stay in the best health, it's it's not a choice. And feeding them is not a choice. And, uh, you know, I thought, is there, you know, when the government says they want to help more people across the board and there's rebates for this and there's, you know, all kinds of stuff for something else, I thought one good step in a policy change might be to start removing the taxes off these things at veterinary offices and even food in grocery stores for animals. Uh, I think that would go a long way to, um, you know, to help people and to make things better. Like, you know, people would notice that. Sometimes it's not the major, major, big-ticket things of getting money back from the government that makes a difference. It's the day-by-day stuff that you might appreciate. Like, if I go to the store and I buy toys for my, my dog, yeah, okay, pay tax on that. I got no problem with that. But, you know, the rest of it and, like, even putting putting an animal down, if an animal's sick or injured or you know, like, I don't know, honestly, if you pay tax on a procedure like that, but that that would be, you know. I'm pretty sure you do. Hard. Yeah. That Last dog hard. we had, we had to put down, unfortunately, which is uh, uh, still dogging us. Uh, terrible word to choose. Still haunts yeah. many people in the crowd, in the family. So the basics, mm-hmm. and look, this is not to be cruel, but this is how the government would react, is, you know, things like food and heat and the like, the necessities of life, we can always have a debate about the appropriate, applicable tax. When it comes to having a pet, it comes with a big, pretty big price tag, which, in fact, really uh, people find out the hard way. You know, when you get a puppy for Christmas or whatever the case may be, and now we see all these animals being returned to the SPCA because people either want didn't know what they're getting themselves into or two didn't realize how expensive it would be so when it's a choice that's basically the argument the government will make people don't necessarily need a dog unless it's a service dog for instance so that's what they will tell you same thing would go for bills on the uh, coming from a veterinarian service we don't get a bill when we go to the doctor for our own physical health and or mental health but we do when we bring our animals in and vets look veterinarians are well-trained dedicated professionals but they also know that the emotional attachment we have with our pets is very, very real. And people pay extraordinary amounts of money for procedures or emergency visits and or nights overnight at the veterinary clinic. So there's always going to be a tax on that. I'd be shocked if there ever was a move to take it away. I get where you're coming from. But when people make personal choices, it comes with a cost. And that's not me saying that this is me trying to guess what the government reaction would be to your plea. Oh yes, I can certainly, uh, I can certainly appreciate that. The government, the government would tax everything. There, there'd be more taxes <laughs> if, if, uh, if they could, if they could find more ways to, uh, you know, to make, make money. That's, that's sure. But I mean, you know what? If people, if people had to think about it, and they said, you know, okay, well, we have to pay taxes on all the animals, and that's a choice. It's a choice to have children as well. So, I mean, if people said, well, children are very expensive. <laughs> And I know for sure, because I've raised two, and uh, the amount of taxes that I've paid for them over uh, 25, you know, years or more, like, I could have chosen, no, they're too expensive, so the government's not getting taxes for me having children. So, you know, like, there's always a counter-argument, and I appreciate you playing the devil's advocate with that. I just think that, you know, 
there, there's ways the government tries to help, and there's ways to be reasonable. Like, there's, there's different things that they've taken tax off in the past, I'm sure, if I, uh, if I remember correctly. And, you know, afterwards, some people say, yeah, that shouldn't have been taxed, you know? But um, I, I just wonder, because you made a really good point there, Patty, about the shelters and things. Like, uh, my daughter worked at one for a while, and I volunteered one day that she was there. One day is not enough, but I'm sure I'm going to have more time in the upcoming uh, years to do more to help. But I uh, I um, would like to point out that, you know, these shelters are full of animals that, you know, people have, and then they either can't afford to to, um, you know, take the proper care of them. And, of course, we know a lot of times there's uh, these organizations that are trying to rescue them from Labrador or bringing them in from other provinces. And, I mean, that breaks my heart because I'd have, I'd have 20 animals if I could, but I know I won't, I won't end up having that many. But, you know, like I was thinking what, what a uh, wonderful thing it would be if the government, if they want to keep taking these taxes, okay, it, you know, you feel you got to take the taxes, why not redirect some of it to the shelters and help out the people that are working in the shelters? Because I'll tell you, I've seen the inside of shelter work, and it's tough. It's tough to see animals come in sick and injured and waiting for medical help and abused animals and then, you know, living out the rest of your life in a little cage waiting to be adopted. And the people that work in shelters, they got they have to have hearts of gold. I don't know if I could do it day in and day out. But the money, like they're always needing money. They're always needing just to keep the doors open, a roof mm-hmm. over the heads of the animals. And uh, it's just like the sugar tax. Okay, the government is taking that. Now, you you know, you got to look at that bottle of Pepsi twice on the shelf and say, huh, well, you know, diet or regular kind of thing. But... Imagine if the money from all these taxes went towards, you know, animal welfare. I think that would make a lot of strides. And, you know, the people that are trying to um, do the best look after animals, because you know what, even if the government never took a cent off tax for uh, veterinary procedures or animal food, it's not going to get rid of the animals because there's always going to be dogs and cats around in the wild that need help or, you know. And it's different in different parts of the province. So last one before I have to take another call is even if something like, because they're not going to take these taxes off, and you and I both know it, but even if when we talk about unwanted animals, what have you, if it was absolutely free to get an animal spayed or neutered, that would help pet population control because some people don't do it because it comes with an additional cost my last comment Mm -hmm. and i'll let you wrap it up is you started off by saying that you know we're not talking low income we're talking about middle class what have you i don't even know what the middle class is anymore i have no idea politicians talk about speaking directly to the middle class blah blah who are they who is this mythical middle middle class it's certainly not what it once was when my parents were raising children it certainly wasn't isn't what it was 20 years ago so that's that unicorn of the middle class that I really like to know who the people think that belongs in that group. Wendy, last word to you before I say goodbye. Thanks, Patty, for giving me the opportunity to voice this because you know what? Animals don't have a big voice. They need a stronger voice. And I think more people need to speak up and say that uh, this could be a very creative way to uh, help out the shelters that work hard enough. The word on the psychologist and the education system, Patty, that's a bigger bone that I might like to chew on with you for another day. I look forward to it. Thanks for the call.
Thank you. Thanks, Bye. Wendy. Bye-bye. All right, let's stay with the breaks on schedule. Uh, John wants to talk about psychiatric nurses. Part of program being rolled out in the province, but again, yet another very helpful healthcare professional that can be part of the system in full here. And then Don's in the queue to talk about what he's deeming a successful regatta day down around the shores of Quieta Vida Lake. Kitty Vitty, if you will. Take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number three. John, you're on the air. Hi, um, Patty. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, my, I just moved back a year a year ago uh, from from the mainland. I retired. My uh, my spouse is a mental health nurse. Uh, she worked with the primary care units uh, up in Alberta. Uh, when the government announced that you know we're taking all these nurses, but we want all these nurses and doctors to come back to Newfoundland and practice. Um, you know, we both thought this is a great opportunity. We have aging parents. We want to get home, uh, help them out, and here's an opportunity for you, us to move, and uh, you, you know you'll you'll get a job because apparently there's tons of them out there. So the problem that she had uh, when she came back was all of these incentives that the government was uh, was offering for nurses and doctors. They were very, very specific, like specific to the point where this incentive is only offered for this specific job in this specific location. Um, so we battled with that for, for quite some time. They said, no, you're not entitled to this, to this allowance and bonus and all these, you know, come home year bonuses and all that kind of stuff. She didn't qualify for any of them. And we said, well, which one does it? Do, would she, you know, qualify for these bonuses as well? Well, this one way up in, you know, Northern Labrador and this one over here. And it was just, it was crazy to think that they're advertising as though they're, you know, there are tons of jobs. But in reality, there were very few jobs that they're offering these bonuses for. Specifically in the mental health realm, she was very, very successful uh, working with the primary care networks in, in, in Alberta, and, and she was very, very busy, um, which goes to show that mental health is, is, a, is a, a, a rising concern uh, across this country. Now, for, for me, um, I've noticed after coming home, um, the number of people you can see it, you know, in your daily life when you when you when you go shopping or you're walking down the street, you can see people who have who have who have problems and 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 that need to be addressed. Um, and it really struck me yesterday when I went to uh, the regatta for the first time in probably 15 years and noticed the amount of, of people, youth, uh, uh, older people, that, that are obviously, um, they have mental health issues. So one of the things when my, my spouse was looking for a job and she, we went through even so much as to talk to uh, the health minister on a couple of occasions who basically uh, met her with indifference saying, oh, well, sorry, we can't, ha- we don't have a job for you and sent a letter, in fact, and, and addressed it to me because I was helping her fight this battle. And in, in the line in the letter said, I'm sorry that we couldn't, that your wife has been unable to find, you know, a, a job of, you know, of her choosing, as if to say, you know, well, she's being too picky about the job that she wants. But all that to say is the the manager, one of the managers for Eastern Health, the HR in HR, said, well, mental health is really not a priority right now. And when I heard that, I nearly fell off my chair. 
<laughs> well, that is an absurd thing to say out loud. Uh, just so I have a clear understanding, what specifically is your wife trained and accredited to do or to be? What type of healthcare professional? Right. So she she mental health nurse, and she's been doing it for 15 years. She did it in Australia. She did it in Prince Edward Island, uh, and she thought she could we, she could come home and make a difference here, um, but. But apparently, it's not an issue, according to the uh, the, ma- the HR manager for uh, Eastern Health. Well, that, HR, that mental health is not a concern, not their pro- on their high priority list mm, for hiring. Well, we have the wrong person sitting in that chair. So, you know, a mental health nurse is that what we've been referring to as a psychiatric nurse? So I, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, um, but I I would imagine that they're they're very closely related. I'll have to talk to her uh, today and, and get the specifics of that. And in fact, if, if that is true, that there's going to be a stream for for this specialty, a psychiatric nurse, I'm sure she'd be quite interested in it. I mean, what would the qualifications be? What would the training be? Um, but the fact that the fact for her is that she would for is that she was a mental health nurse, you know, um, in in a clinical position, treating people, you know, and 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 what she would do, uh, in essence, was to was to, you know, to vet the ones that needed care from a psychiatrist, um, and and be that and be that go-between between the psychiatrists and the psychologists, which, which basically um, uh, removed a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the legwork for those two professionals who were even in higher demand, as you can imagine. I think the ultimate concern here, well, I shouldn't say that, one of the obvious logistical concerns here is that currently there isn't any guidance or representative organization like a college, for instance, of registered nurses or a college of physicians and surgeons that actually lists psychiatric nurses as an approved accredited professional in this province. That move is being dealt with as introduced this pilot program. So regardless of what that person said about this not being a concern, it is a concern and whoever thinks it's not should really, you know, look look in the mirror and see whether or not they belong in any job of authority. So if that's changing, and it is, then hopefully that means that your and her accreditations will be guided by legislation, guided by a regulatory body like a college, so that she can get a job because we need her. Plain and simple, we need her. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I just hope that this pilot project won't be a 14-year pilot project and then another 10 years to implement because we know how quickly government works with these sorts of things. Yeah, they're talking about one year, and that just makes all the sense in the world to me because, again, we're not reinventing something here. We're just looking at other jurisdictions, best practices, how the regulatory body looks and works, what the accreditation and credentials look like. It's easy enough to, I hate to say it, to copy and paste, but it is. I mean, if we can do it in other jurisdictions, jurisdictions in this country with very similar standards of training and education, then we should be able to apply it here very quickly. You know, set up the college, allow them to do their work to accommodate this 12-month pilot, and then just open the floodgates and bring them in as quick as we possibly can to hopefully every nook and cranny of the province that needs that discipline. Absolutely. I totally agree. And uh, just uh, one last point in, in along those lines. We shouldn't be in Newfoundland and Labrador. We are so strapped for healthcare professionals. We shouldn't be turning away any healthcare professional that wants to come to this province, no matter what type of nurse they are. If they're a nurse willing to come back to this province and work, then we should be going all out to find them a, a suitable position to work in, something meaningful and gainful. 
Yeah, and I, I'm sure you mean, including this caveat, is, look, there's other countries, whether it be in Australia, I think you mentioned that your wife works, or in the UK or in the United States or in Germany or France or whatever. If you have first world modern countries with very high standards for professionals to be accredited inside the world of healthcare, let's fast track it. Let's make it happen. We can't pretend that someone trained at the University of Sydney, Australia, isn't prepared to be a doctor in St. John's. You can't pretend that if you went to Trinity College in Dublin, you're not up to snuff to be a nurse in Burgio. I mean, let's just be a bit more realistic about this stuff. Yes, we have to ensure your credentials are up to the grade that Canadian colleges and regulatory bodies demand, but we're kind of just playing paper warfare here. Bureaucracy over pragmatism. Let's get real. Some of these people are absolutely ready and raring to go. Let's open the door, have the very quick fast track of making sure your credentials and your CV are accurate, and then come on in. Yeah, absolutely. And then the funny thing is, uh, she, she went to Memorial. She graduated from Memorial. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so to come back and get a job here, it's been, you know, it's been like pulling teeth. Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. But anyway, thank you for your time, Patty. I really appreciate that. I appreciate yours, John. Stay in touch. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, look, you got to get things right. And we can't be reckless. But a psychiatric nurse that is currently living and working in Toronto went to the U of T or Memorial Let's just make sure that we can deal with this. And in the world of residence and residency positions, just remember the story we talked about last week, week before, whenever it was, about the number of Canadian-born, trained abroad doctors. And there was the one story, once again, with Australia. A lady who's been working, she went to school in Australia, been working in Australia for over 10 years as a family doctor, tried to come back to this country to practice, and after 18 months, still nothing had happened. 18 months. But then when it made the national news, lo and behold, two days later, it got settled. She actually had to leave her husband and her children here, go back to Australia to keep her license valid and active, while the government tried to figure this out. Not the government. It's the two regulatory bodies responsible for this type of evaluation of someone's training, evaluation and verification of their education, what have you. But imagine, it took national news to get regulatory bodies to open their eyes to the fact that people are struggling to find healthcare professionals. Then it's, you know, even trying to get a foreign-trained Canadian to find a residency position. Yes, of course, the medical schools and the regulatory bodies would like to see residency positions for their own locally trained doctors in this case. But how many dozens or hundreds of doctors have we lost because we can't figure that out? There's a lot, I guess, we haven't been able to figure out. Don, appreciate your patience. You stay right there. We want to talk about your day at the regatta. Thankfully for Don and his crew, it was not the regretta. All right, don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Don Connolly. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly. It's a great day again, of course, here in Newfoundland. Beauty. Uh, A great successful regatta, and thankfully, uh, the St. John's Lions Club was a part of it. Um, We had tickets on the the gold uh, for regatta day this year, Uh, Patty. It was a a family ATV sweep, we called it. Um, And uh, basically, we had two bikes or two ATVs uh, up for grabs uh, for one ticket. It was a 570 two-up seat Polaris uh, and a, a 110 Sportsman Polaris from um, Coastal Outdoors. 
and uh, we managed to sell some tickets on this thing, and we have a winner. Um, the winner is number zero six four nine five. Patty, it was a great day down at the regatta. I got to say we had some um, sales in advance at the Avalon Mall and uh, Health Sciences and another couple of spots around uh, around the city for a while. But uh, our big day, of course, was down at the regatta. Um, there were a lot of people down there yesterday really enjoying themselves and taking in all the all the activities and um, thankfully i think it was a great day for everybody i've heard from a couple of vendors and they say they had a banner day now i hope that's the case for everyone who took the time with their volunteers to try to fill up the coffers of their charity or not-for-profit because i mean for many it's the biggest day of the year so thankfully it was a big one for you folks at the st john's lions club and i think that's been widely the consensus amongst a bunch of the vendors that they had a great day that's good news no, without a doubt, uh, Patty, it was a great opportunity. And we had a lot of our Lions Club uh, members show up and assist us with uh, uh, with selling tickets, uh, some for the entire day, some for a few hours, but all, all the help was grateful. And uh, together, it was a great day. Weather was fantastic. And like you say, the crowds were really good. And uh, everybody seemed to really be enjoying themselves. So great day all around. Glad to hear it. What kind of uh, programs or services, what's going to be here? marked with that money well Patty, we we reach out and, and help a lot of people in the community as you know uh with the lions club uh we're the longest running sponsor of any air cadet uh, program in canada we started sponsoring the 510 air cadets uh, back in 1949 when we first started uh, the lions club here in st john's and we are still sponsoring that club um lions are the knights of the blind as you've heard me say in the past and um we reach out and help uh, blind and visually impaired people in many different ways. Um, we also uh, help out at uh, health sciences, particularly uh, the eye care unit over there, and uh, provide different uh, machines and services available there. And uh, through other health care services, we help out. We also help uh, with the gathering place, Ronald McDonald House, um, the Singles Parents Association, and uh, many other activities around town. Uh, and of course reach out to um, uh, needy families particularly around the Christmas season and we just uh, try to help people in the community as the need arises to make life a little bit easier you're doing good work Don I'm glad you had a good day out of it yesterday anything else you want to tell us before we say goodbye this morning yeah, I just I just want to reach out and, and say thank you to all the volunteer associations and uh, organizations uh, that reach out and help the people in the community. Without service clubs, uh, we'd be in a lot of trouble, I think. But there are still people out there that are willing to help out and and, and provide service. And that's our motto is, is uh, we serve uh, at the Lions Club. And if people are out there looking for anything to do, to want to feel good for themselves for a change, it's always nice to be able to help other people and uh, Lions Clubs across this province and certainly here in St. John's we're willing to uh, uh, talk to anybody that's interested in helping out a little bit more to help serve the community feel good about themselves and help out the community that's what it's all about here here Don nice to have you on the show 
Thanks, Patty. Have a great day. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Don Connolly doing good work on lots of fronts, not only with the St. John's Lions Club, but of course, Don has been a caller over the years talking about opportunities, activities for those with uh, vision loss. So anyway, I always like talking to Don. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Excellent. How about you? Good. Now, I uh, spoke to you before about uh, several issues on my service dog. But I want to say this time, uh, when I was admitted to the Cornerbrook uh, Hospital here, that the welcome that my service dog got was just amazing. It, it was, you know, uh, Patty, this is, um, no one questioned me. They brought him bananas, apples. He got his own bid beside me. Um, this was truly, truly, um, you know, um, they went above and beyond, and uh, it was really nice to see. I'm glad to hear it. You know, we every now and then we hear issues regarding service dogs, and there's been a couple of news stories about, in the recent past, a cab company denying service to a uh, customer, potential customer with a service dog. That's the second time they've had the exact same circumstance. There was a service dog issue out at one of the malls in Cornerbrook where they were asked to leave because you're not allowed to have a pet. So I think we just have to have a better understanding of a service dog and why people need them. Because, you know, some people just think that maybe a service dog is for someone that's a maybe is blind but there's all types of service dogs out there whether it be folks with ptsd folks with epilepsy all kinds of service dogs we have to recognize how important they are and treat them like people treated your dog and understand that they're required it's not an option you can't say no to people with a service dog it is what it is for the obvious reasons no these dogs are absolutely amazing they're a um, they're a part of you now i have my dog because of ptsd after 25 years of service um, you know, um, these dogs, um, they're a lifesaver. And, and to see how, how uh, Western Health, and they have a very comprehensive uh, dog policy there. And how, how I was treated there uh, with my dog was just absolutely amazing. And, and I am so warmed in my heart that that uh, these guys would do that to bring in a bid net for my own dog so he can be closer to me it's just above and beyond these guys are angels patty these guys are angels love the feel good stories don't get enough of them greg but i'm glad you shared yours this morning thank you patty now Pre- we'll talk soon i appreciate your time take care greg bye-bye now. all right bye-bye yeah you mean look i think some of the issues we've seen surrounding service dogs are maybe born of innocence or potentially ignorance not knowing why some people might need a service dog and what it takes for the training and the role that the dog plays in that person's life the most recent story regarding a cab company was the fellow had been i think struck by a vehicle and as a result he was suffering from some ptsd and got a service dog we've also heard of people that are trying to raise money to get service dogs for folks who are working with the cnib I mean, we're talking about, what was it, what's the number that we were th- using? $50,000 for one service dog to buy the dog, to have the dog trained, to have the dog brought here and matched up with someone who needs the uh, role of a service dog. So <laughs> that's really quite something. Dave, you want me to take a call or you want me to take a break on time? Call in. Let's go to line six. Good morning, Ernst Stecker. You're on the air. Good morning, Pat. How are you? That's kind. You? Here, Betty. Uh, Patty, I called you about a month ago. Uh, Jewish, we were talking about the golf fishery there. 
Yeah, Joyce Murray, our federal minister of fisheries, but which is not right now, was to the shuffle last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was supposed to announce that the, the golf cod, she closed it last year for one year, she said, the golf cod fishery. But she didn't announce it this year what is going to be open or not this year or is going to remain closed or and I can't seem to find out anything Patty like you know from DFO or, or the union or none of that eh? so but you know a lot of fishermen is, is talking about it you know, why why haven't she announced either which way like you know is they going to open just you know just drag being along well, here, fish, uh, was getting, fish are was getting pretty concerned now Patty because you know we're into the August month now and uh, and uh, no, no announcement either which way. So they, they were expecting to be old actually this year. So and uh, but nothing, no, nothing had been said about it. So, so you're right. Choice Murray's out of that portfolio. The new federal minister of fisheries is Diane Leboutier, and yeah. we'll see how quickly uh, the minister can get up to speed. The rumbles we hear, and I shouldn't be talking about rumbles and rumors. I can't get it confirmed, but what I've been told is that the moratorium continues both on the Gulf cod and on the mackerel fishery, which I think the mackerel announcement has been made but the gulf cod i mean here we are like you rightfully say it's the third of august about time to have some sort of decision whether people like it or not at least tell us what's going on that's right you know patty at least she, she told the people it was one for, for one year one year only right so you know it, it, it's a, a lot of lost earnings for a lot of fish harbors with, with the gulf cod closure and uh it was Raider to Blues when she closed it last year, and uh, you know there's a lot of lost earnings for fish harvesters, and plus you know the the mackerel fishery shut down. That's a lot of lost earnings for mackerel per se operators. You know it cost them thousands of thousand dollars to get into that, but now they are shut down. So, but you know we don't seem to remember much about it anyway, Patty. I'll see if I can get some sort of confirmation one way or the other from uh, whether it be that the union has uh, up-to-date information or the federal minister's office. I'm sure we're not going to get a chance to speak with the minister quite yet on her new portfolio and the concerns therein. But I'll get the info confirmed as best I can. I tried before I went on holidays with very limited success, but that's what I've been told is that the moratorium continues this year. But let me see if I can verify that. And regarding mackerel, you know, when Minister Murray was inside, uh, was the minister of the fisheries, she was talking about the mackerel uh, moratorium, then trying to talk about working with the United States states as a shared stock that is mackerel and they continue with the mackerel fishery albeit with a vastly reduced quota but they are fishing mackerel and here it's been a full-on moratorium hard to make heads or tails of it folks who are in the precautionary mode or precautionary state of mind say that's the right thing to do if they actually think it should be applied to Capelin but if we're sharing a stock then you think there'd be some similar actions taken in both countries but obviously not the case in mackerel. That's right, that's right, Patty. Y'all. You know, you know, the fishermen are losing thousands and thousands of dollars of income because of this closure, right? So, you know, especially, you know, they're pretty concerned over that. Yeah, so very good, sir. Let me see if I can uh, get something. Dave, can we see if we can get the confirmation? Yeah, I called the union about a month ago, and they go, they said, they said, and they even said they earlier this spring they, they get some kind of cod quota for us this year, but they don't seem to get anywhere with that either. So don't seem to anything have happened at all with anything there, Patty. We'll give it another shot. See what we can find out. Well, well thank you very much, and Patty. Nice talking to you. My pleasure, Ernest. Take care. Yeah, thank you. Have a nice right. day. You too. Bye bye. Again, it's the, <laughs> it's the same thing. Bit of broken record stuff. It might not be the answer you want. But an answer is better than silence. Is there going to be a Gulf cod fishery this year? Yes, no. 
And if we get the either side of the yes or the no, maybe try to figure out rationale associated with the yes or no, but nope, not a peep. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, Don has an issue with a noisy neighbor, I believe. And then Tom wants to talk about the inability to adopt a pet. Why? We'll find out. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Don, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about you? Uh, it's first time calling. I'm good. Uh, Welcome. And it's not Najee neighbor. I'm sorry. I'm um, probably misunderstood me. Uh, but I'll give you a little bit of background if I can. And sure. It's uh, not going to take me long. Uh, uh, last September the 1st, my wife uh, was medevac to St. John's Health Science. And uh, she had an operation. She had a sinus infection that went to the brain. And she had a major operation. And then about seven days after that, they had to go back in again because it didn't work. Well, it worked, but they had to make sure. And then about a week and a half or so after that, they had to go back in again and put a shunt in. And uh, I got to give all kinds of praise to the people in the health science. They're the best. The nurses, the doctors, the staff, they're uh, unbelievable. Uh, they treated us like kings. And, and uh, we were there for... Uh, probably f- four months, I guess, in in health science, and I didn't know my way around St. John's, and the nurses, and that gave me direction. People there brought me in lunches, and people I didn't even know. It was amazing, and then we went to the health at uh, the Miller Center. I'm sorry, and for some therapy, they couldn't do a lot because. They, uh, my wife has uh, had to wear a helmet, of course, because of this. It's like a, it's a big hole. They had to take the brain cap off for the operation, and they couldn't put it back on because they didn't know about the swelling and things. And so we went on to the Miller Center. We spent Christmas and New Year's and her birthday at the Miller Center and treated like kings again. I mean, I got to say, they're the best people in the world, and the strangers in St. John's I didn't know showed me directions, let me follow them back and forth to the hotel I was living in. So we were there for all to get around six months in St. John's. And so uh, we came home uh, the latter part of January, I think it was, and and uh, we live about, uh, I'll give you a little bit of uh, information, we live about a mile and a half down from the highway, and uh, the town has a piece of property there. It's called Village Green, and my home is right on that. It's separated by a, just a driveway, more or less, right? And everything was good. The local Lions Club donated a hospital bed. We had to move downstairs because we got a two-story home. And my friends set it all up for me. It was all done. Everything was good. And, and we're dealing with it. And my wife still hasn't had the operation to put the brain cap back on. So I have to be very careful how to move her around and things like that. And and last year, before we went to St. John's, the town sent out a letter because we were complaining a little bit about noise and stuff like that. And we understand gamble days. It's beautiful, perfect. Everything is good. You know, there's a dance and stuff that's all right, but uh, I don't mind staying up for that and and uh, just living here. But most of the time we go away on a little holiday because we're both retired. And uh, so they sent us a letter and about concerns. And I, well, I told them before 
lots of times about my concerns about this. It's a tent. It's a party tent, I guess you call it. Who owns this party tent? Uh, the town. And it's it's 74 feet from my property. That's exactly what it is. And uh, so this tent, of course, now you know music. You're up all night. You gotta, they can go home when they want to. I can't. Uh, I'm living here. So they send us... I complained about they rented it out for weddings and socials and stuff like that. And I, I, me and my neighbors, both of us, we complained and said, you shouldn't have that there. It's We're working people at that time. And so it kind of slowed down. And they had their gamble days and things like that and and slowed down. And I didn't know nothing. We sent the letter back. We put our concerns in. And because we're surrounded, like that, the village is surrounded by homes and most of the people 90% of the people are retired people you know but it's up to them what they do and so we sent back our concerns and we never got a reply back from the town and like, what town are we talking about Don are we in the city of St. John's or no no in Gamble in Gamble okay yeah I don't know if you'd mentioned that one okay in Gamble sorry yeah and uh, so we sent back our reply and our concerns of course and they never replied back so I thought it was you know, a dead deal. There'd be no more weddings or whatever. And so last Saturday, I didn't know anything was going on, and we were home, and my wife was in bed, and we moved downstairs, of course, and and uh, they had a wedding. Now, nothing against these people. That, I mean, they probably did, don't even know our situation. And they had a wedding, of course. I was up to 4 o'clock in the morning, Saturday night. So I phoned the town on Monday morning, and I asked them about the concerns and the letters and all that stuff and the regulations of the town. And so the town clerk, a very nice gentleman, uh, told me he'd look into it. And so I went, they called me back uh, Monday evening and they said there's no regulations in how far the, te- the tent has to be from my home. I said, no regulations? And they said, no. And, I said, so what options do I have? So um, I got a list of the bylaws from the town, and it said that uh, uh, the weekend immediately before Gamble Days and the weekend immediately after Gamble Days, uh, they can rent the tent out uh, to whoever wants it and have their wedding or social party or whatever they want, you know. And so I said, my God, this is outrageous. So I said, can anybody rent this tent? They said, yeah. I said, so is any control? No, that's up to the people that rent the tent. They can party as long as they want. Like I'm saying, it's nothing against the people that had the wedding there. That's fine. That's their, That's up to them. They probably don't even know our situation. And uh, so uh, I said, there's not... And the only option that I, so I got a copy of the regulations and and there's a noise factor in there of course like every town. So I said the only option I have is phone the RCMP and shut down someone's wedding day. They said, yeah, that's the only option I have. I mean, who can be so cruel to do that? The RCMP don't want to come here and shut down someone's wedding day. My God, it's the town got lots of land everywhere. They can put this tent up and rent it out for weddings or socials. I mean, uh, it's cruel. It's 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 ridiculous. So, mm-hmm. three weeks out of the summer, I'm here in in my house. I can't go anywhere because my wife got to wear a helmet. 
I, I can't do anything. I go for a little draw because, uh, like, a, a minor accident could be a major accident. So, because she got this hole, and only there's only skin there, you know, and it's in the brain. So, it's uh, I don't know where to turn. I don't know if anybody can tell me if I got a any any kind of law that that can do something about this situation. I mean, this year is the weekend before and the weekend after. Next year it could be the two weekends before, the two weekends after. I mean, the bit of money that the town makes off of this social, it's a couple of thousand bucks. I mean, it sure costs more than labor to put that up by the town employees. I mean, it's outrageous. I just don't understand. I like, I'm in a situation now that I can't go anywhere because the way we have to live right now, I, like I can't pick up and just go to a hotel. I, I, my wife, I got to be awful careful what I do, and 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 we're still waiting for our call from to get this last operation done. And and, and every time I phone, it's just a message saying there's no updates on uh, on surgeries, and that's understandable. They're very busy, and I understand it, but. And the people of Gamble are the best. They they treated us like absolutely beautiful. Lions Club, even gas stations, gas certificates, and even my mechanic even fixed my car up free. And and it's amazing how people are so good. And I like the reason why I'm phoning mostly. Like I want to get this operation done, obviously, and so we can have a bit of freedom because. Uh, and but the reason why I'm falling, falling mostly is that uh, I want to let the people of the town know that's renting the tent that I'm not a cruel person. I don't want to shut down someone's wedding day, but the town is leaving me with no options. I mean, I can't have my wife up to four o'clock in the morning. No, of course not. So I'm I'm sad to hear about your wife. And the issue here is straight up municipal re- responsibility. What's surprising is that, like for instance, right here in the city, I live with an earshot of the Iceberg Alley tent, but they have a cut off time because of the noise bylaws. George Street Festival is on the go. They have to have the music stopped by eleven o'clock because of the noise bylaws, which are uh, ruled and put in place by the city. So Gambo has all the authority they want to rent out this tent for whatever it is a social a wedding a birthday party a bar mitzvah or whatever the case may be but they should have the sensible approach having a noise bylaw and a time cut off i can put up with whatever noise till 11 o'clock i mean because people have these events that they want to plan and or concerts making money or just to get together for a scuff so that's where the responsibility lies no one's going to be able to tell the town of gambo to do any different necessarily i don't know if the department of municipal affairs has any thoughts on the matter but this is basically whether not they have a noise bylaw like we have right here in the city and i would imagine most municipalities have the exact same thing i could be in my backyard here the band's playing down around kitty bitty at the iceberg alley tent and 11 o'clock it's over and that's why because they're told it had to be over so i'm surprised the town doesn't take this pragmatic responsible and uh approach to their citizens because your peace and quiet regardless of your medical issues inside the home peace and quiet is part of what we have in our own sanctuaries that we call our home and i don't want to be up to all hours of the night if there's a party in my neighborhood at two three o'clock in the morning and it's bugging neighbors inevitably the police will show up and shut it down why because there's a noise bylaw so maybe i would possibly 
reach out to the municipal affairs department at the province to see if they have any authority to evaluate bylaws in one community or another. I don't know that they have the authority to tell the town to implement a noise bylaw, but out of common sense and a bit of compassion, you think they'd have some controls in place. Yeah, they they told me that uh, the noise boiler. I have it here, and because uh, I got a copy, and it's ten o'clock. Uh, but they just throw it aside for a week either side of Gambo days. Yeah, no, uh, I can phone the RCMP. It's oh. the option I have. It's a long way to go for a bit of peace and quiet. Have to call the cops. Uh, like the cops don't want to shut down a wedding. No, they uh, don't. I don't want to shut down a wedding. <laughs> You know, the town got lots of property around it. They can uh, put this tent up and 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 have people enjoy themselves and enjoy their day. I'm, I can't shut down a wedding day, my God. Like I, I want the town, just the town people. I don't really care about the town. Uh, the town people know that the town is putting this on my shoulders and making me out to be the culprit. If I do phone the air CMP and mm-hmm. show up and shut it down. My God, these people are going to say, how cruel is that man? I'm not cruel, you know. But eventually you're going to run out of patience, and you might have to do what you got to do, right? It's not about being mean or cruel or callous. It's about your own peace and quiet, too. So I wouldn't hesitate that at 3 o'clock in the morning, if I'm still up pacing around the house because 74 feet from my home is a party outside of the noise ball law regulations, I'd have no problem with it. But, hey, that's me. Yeah, I know, I understand, but uh, I just like kind of want to let the people know that if, if I do, uh, it's, don't blame me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not my issue. I mean, the, the town should have better common sense, in my opinion. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. But anyway, Patty, thank you for listening to me and and uh, taking my call, and uh, uh, have a good day. I appreciate your time. I wish you and the wife well. Thank you much. Thanks, Don. All the best. Yeah, I mean, look, it might be a wedding and the, the most joyous day of that couple's lives and their fellow attendees. But, you know, they're not going to. If they know they can go at it for whatever length of time into the wee morning hours, then they probably will. But the town has authority on that front. Uh, Tom, appreciate your patience. You're up next to talk about the problems trying to adopt a cat. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Oh, oh, oh. oh sorry. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, <laughs> I called uh, on Monday and I was speaking to uh, Tim about a. I was coming back from the recreational fishery, and uh, 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 the guy in front of me, his toolbox came out of the back of his truck. Uh, I brought it home and was hoping he would call me, which he did. So he picked it up on uh, a couple of days ago. So thanks to you guys, he got reunited with a very expensive toolbox and a whole bunch of tools. Good. Good news. Uh, at the same time, uh, I mentioned that our family cat of 14 years had passed away. And that if anybody had a kitten, my nine-year-old is really looking for a kitten. Uh, we haven't gotten any calls, but we've been going around everywhere, all the pet stores. And finally, yesterday, I went over to uh, the city of St. John's Animal Control Center there, uh, and uh, went in. And my my son was really excited because there was a bunch of kittens and cats around. And uh, he said we had to fill out an application, which I did. And uh, 
So anyway, as we got the application completed, I was asked, do you have pets now? I said, yeah, we have a, a cat at home because we always had to uh, believe in having companionship for a pet. And we have a golden retriever dog. Uh, and uh, they said spade. I said, yes, the cat's been spayed uh, ever since we got it. And uh, the dog is not quite two, and we're waiting to uh, for it to get to be two. And the next time she goes in the heat, we plan to have some pups because we have a whole bunch of friends and family who are looking for a golden retriever because they're great with kids. And uh, we said we'd breed her once and then have her spayed. Well, because my golden retriever is not spayed, we're not eligible to adopt a kitten. Uh, I wanted to understand why. I kept being told it was the policy. I said, yes, I understand that's your policy, but I can for the life understand why I need to have my dog spayed in order to bring a kitten in our home. And I'm still talking to you, not being able to understand why I need to get my dog spayed to put a kitten in my home. Yeah, so are they, I mean, we're not talking about farm fish and wild salmon, I mean, and the eventual hybrid mongrel fish, so what are we thinking is the problem with the dog and the cat? Um, That's what I asked, and I didn't want to be insulting, but I said maybe something has changed, and now dogs and cats are copulating, uh, which they didn't appreciate, but I said, man, I'd like to be able to understand your policy, and I used the example of where I was at the dollar store last week picking up things in my bag I had in my hand when the lady told me when I got to the cash that you can't do that. That's our policy. I said, why? It's not easier. She said, no, people have a tendency to leave things in the bag. Hey, great policy. Won't do it anymore. Uh, So I said, you need to explain this to me. The bottom line was she told me I was an irresponsible pet owner. And so we left. So (laughs) people I've been told the story to find it amazing. I could understand if I had another cat in the home, which I do, that wasn't spayed, and possibly we would add to the cat population. I don't know, but (laughs) the fact that I have to get this very expensive purebred a golden retriever spayed in order to bring a kitten into the house leaves me having to call you to say maybe somebody can explain this to us because I certainly can't. So. Yeah, well, I'm not sure what to say because now, for the love of you know what, I'm thinking about the golden shepherd, a uh, golden retriever, and a tomcat copulating because someone <laughs> thinks you're an irresponsible dog owner. Like, what does this even mean? I don't know. They, they try to make the case that they're an animal control center, so their role is to try and reduce the number of animals and things in the city, which is commendable. Great. Good for you. Sure. Uh, I don't see too many dogs actually roaming around the city these days, but no. I'm not everywhere to see it. I do see lots of cats, but, you know, cats really don't attack people or bite them or cause problems. And uh, so, obviously, they have a role to fulfill, but... To, to require uh, a person to a spade or a dog so they can get a kitten in their, in their home. It leaves me as one of the craziest things I've heard in my neither three, nearly three-quarters of a century life. 
I try to give careful consideration to all the calls. I try to do follow-up as best possible, try to envision what the rationale might be. But, Tom, I tell you right now, straight to your ear, I am going to give this zero thought after we hang up. Patty, <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you. The only reason I called was I was in my car and I heard the gentleman talking about how he was treated uh, with his uh, his dog, his caring dog, or his, uh, I forget the name he used now for him. And I, I was sitting there and I said, good for him. I'm glad they treated his dog well and treated him well. And I said, maybe I'll call in. I spoke to Dave. And Dave said, yeah, maybe somebody will be interested in it. So speak to Patty. So <laughs> I don't expect a call. I don't expect a call from you. I don't expect follow-up from you. But if somebody knows the reason for this, maybe they give me a call. So at least I'll understand it. <laughs> if they do have some advice or some rationale to offer, I will gladly put forward David Williams as the intermediary. <laughs> <laughs> now, David's going to hate me, so I'll get 10, 10 emails hate me. The only person that gets more hateful mail than me is you, so now I'll get all this hate mail. So. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be all right, Tom. Yeah, okay. but if someone can give us a basic understanding or if this is just someone being mean-spirited because they think you're irresponsible and that could be as simple as that but we will or at least dave will try to see if we can figure out some sort of explanation beyond the foolishness that it sounds like but uh, anyway tom i appreciate the giggle i don't appreciate appreciate the visual but fair enough thank you and sorry dave Have a thanks good. tom all the best all right bye-bye uh yeah what uh, Gerard, you stay right there. We're going to speak with Gerard Lynch right after this. He's the co-chair of the Sunnyside Heritage Association. What's going on with that crowd? We'll find out right after this. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the co-chair of the Sunnyside Heritage Association. That's Gerard Lynch. Good morning, Gerard. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, I'd just like to announce this morning that on Saturday, August the 5th, Sunnyside will be celebrating the 165th anniversary of the landing of the first successful transatlantic cable, telegraph cable here in Sunnyside. But of course, um, Sunnyside was then known as Babel's Arm. Right. Yeah, we'll have a little, uh, just starting at noon, we're going to have uh, Barry Harris from Radio Amateurs of Canada. And him, uh, him and his group, they'll be setting up at uh, uh, their equipment at the Sunnyside Recreation and Wellness Centre. And they'll be uh, contact, uh, connecting with Valencia, Ireland, uh, because of the first transatlantic cable in 1858 ran from Valencia, Ireland uh, to uh, Babel's Arm here in Sunnyside. Uh, later on, then, I guess we'll have a, a display of our storyboards. We'll also have a video display and, and a, a talk on the history of the first transatlantic cable. We'll have snacks and refreshments served, and later on, we'll be doing uh, guided tours to the site of the first transatlantic telegraph cable buildings here in Sunnyside. And Valencia is Valencia Island, right? Valencia, Ireland. Yes, that's right. Yes. Right. So what are you doing, not only for the social aspects here, but to talk about what the transatlantic cable is and the work that went into it? And of course, we know what it eventually meant to modern day communication. So what specifically about the transatlantic cable is going to be discussed or information boards or what have you? So people, I would imagine most people have a basic understanding of the history regarding that cable. But what more can you tell us? Well, I guess uh, uh, we like to say here in Sunnyside that Sunnyside is where the Internet began. Sure. Because the first successful transatlantic telegraph cable here in Sunnyside uh, was the beginning of a network of more than 300 subsea cables uh, that make up the World Wide Web. But there's still people who think when you 
pick up your cell phone and you call your friend in England or Japan, they think the, the signal goes up into some satellite in space and crosses the ocean like that. But actually, they go to the nearest cell phone tower, and from there, it goes into sub in the cables and across the ocean, it goes into subsea cables. So uh, I guess uh, Sunnyside, uh, here in Sunnyside, was the beginning of it all. This is where it all began, and the first ca- tra- successful cable ran through Sunnyside. And uh, 732 messages were sent through the cable here for, uh, before the cable finally ceased to operate properly. Uh, I guess it was landed here on August 5th, 1858, and the last recognizable signal was in October the 20th. And uh, one, one of the first official messages was a message, a congratulatory message from Queen Victoria to the U.S. President James Buchanan, congratulating on the success of the first Transatlantic Telegraph Cable. So it, it took about four years to complete, but how long after 1858 was it still operable? Uh, 1858, it only uh, it only operated from uh, August the 5th, I guess, to land until October the 20th, 20th of that year. And I guess uh, there was a difference of opinion on how to improve the signal between William Thompson and Waterman Whitehouse. And Waterman Whitehouse went with his idea that if you crank up the power, increase the power to the cable, it would increase the signal. But uh, by doing so, it burnt out the cable. So I guess uh, there, were a lot, there, was, there were a lot of things, a lot of lessons learned by the cable here that went through Sunnyside, uh, enough that eight years later, with a lot of hard work and persistence, uh, Cyrus Field was able to gather funding and ru- uh, run another cable, which the next time it came into Hearts Content, the second transatlantic cable came into Hearts Content. Mm-hmm. This was a more robust cable, a little bit different technology. And that was like 1866 or... 1866, yeah, that's right. Uh, eight years after Sunnyside. And totally different material. So, uh, I, and I don't know the answer to this question, was there ever a real firm determination as to what caused the failure? Was it White House's extra voltage scheme or was it handling or storage? Does anyone really know exactly what caused that three week, uh, after three weeks failure? There was, a, there was an inquiry in Scotland, I think a couple of years after the failure of the cable, and uh, the results of the inquiry seem to say that uh, by increasing that, increasing the voltage, uh, helped burn the cable out, and also storage and handling was a problem. It was uh, manufacturing, uh, hasty manufacturing, and uh, improper storage was also uh, it also all contributed to to the failure of the first cable. Uh, last one for you. I don't mean to be quizzing you on this. Do we happen to know how long it took for the message to make its way from Valencia Island to Bay Bulls or the Bay of Bulls? It, it was slow. I think the, the, the message from the Queen took several hours uh, to transmit across. It's fascinating stuff. The last time I remember even hearing Sunnyside Heritage Association in the news was, I believe, when Igor wiped out one of the trails, Center Hill or something, and you folks were intimately involved in getting that back on track. What else does the uh, Sunnyside Heritage Association work on? Uh, well, we do trails. We uh, Center Hill Trail is one of the one of the best trails in in uh, Newfoundland. We also uh, uh, built a new trail recently, the Harbour View Trail, which is 3.6 kilometers and is 
kind of follows the top of the hills. We just completed the last couple of weeks, we just completed the trail going from the main road into the site of the first transatlantic telegraph cable buildings. And uh, that's uh, just uh, half a kilometer each way. Great stuff. Uh, uh, Give the folks the details one more time, Gerard, as to how you're going to commemorate the where and the winds of the first transatlantic cable. Okay, we're going to have a Barry Harris, uh, Radio Amateurs of Canada. He'll be um, he'll be connecting his, his equipment and connecting to Valencia, Ireland, sending a message there. Uh, our storyboards will be on display, and we'll have a discussion on that. We'll be doing a video display of some pictures from that era. And later in the afternoon, we'll be doing guided tours to the site of the first transatlantic telegraph cable station. I know a fellow who's actually got a picture hanging on his wall in his basement, the map of the cable. It's just popped in my mind. Uh, Good to have you on the show, Gerard. Good luck with this event and whatever else the Sunnyside Heritage Association is working on. Okay, thank you, Petty, and thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Stay in touch. All right, bye-bye. I mean, it's fascinating when you talk about Marconi and then you talk about the transatlantic cables, both the Bay of Bulls and or Heart's Content. Pretty extraordinary telecommunications history. Uh, Hold off on this one, David. Okay. Do you want me to talk us to the break? Is that the play here? So, you know, there's a few things that we probably could do more to capitalize on, whether it be with ecotourism or our aviation history just comes to mind about things that we really do have historical significance in advancements in aviation. And this transatlantic telegraph cable stuff is extraordinary. And it's actually fascinating stuff when you look at what the implications were of that first cable. And he's right. We all think that everything beams from my iPhone directly into space when it goes to a tower and still goes through a fiber op, fiber optic cables, and that's how the transmissions happen. I don't know much about telecommunications. I can barely operate the phone. But when we know that we have these historically significant developments, milestones, Maybe, just maybe, inside the world of uh, tourism. Now, I don't know how many people will travel to do what? The culinary scene or to see a whale or a puffin or an iceberg or to come for ecotourism or to come for aviation history. Like, just think about all the celebrations that we could indeed be exploring because who knows? For some people, they will map out their life of travel around UNESCO World Heritage Sites, of which we have, what is it, we have five, Dave? Five here in the province, I think it is, five? And, or things like transatlantic cables, communications, you know, to visit the place where the cable first landed, in Bay of Bulls, then in Heart's Content, and up on Signal Hill, all the things that we kind of take for granted here because it's part of our history but might not be viewed as as rich a history as it absolutely is. I mean, just think about it. And, you know, as Gerard said, it's sort of laid for the path for the Internet. Pretty cool. 18, what was it, in the 1850, so it began in 1854, finally completed in 1858, and then it was 65 or ish when it made its way to Heart's Content, so great stuff. Let's check in on the Twitter. Where have we OCM Open Line? You can follow us there. Uh, Jason sends along a Wikipedia page saying, the La Manche mine was owned by the same people as the Transatlantic Cable. That's pretty cool. I had no earthly idea. I'll read that particular Wikipedia page during the upcoming news. We're also taking your emails. It's open line at vocm.com. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, for some people, the pandemic is over in full. For some people, if they ever hear the word COVID ever again, they'll be ill. 
But the fact is people are getting ill from COVID. It's still out there. And so like we've long tried to do on this program, people with information, information is power. And it's not about fear, it's about awareness. And if you want to take on that topic or, of course, anything under the sun, we can do it right after this news break. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Keith, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Doing okay, thanks. How you doing? <clears throat> Not too bad. Uh, long time no chat about COVID, unfortunately. Still, still out here advocating for education and safety and stuff. And, uh, yeah, I just wanted to drop by with some updates as to what we uh, advocates here in Newfoundland and all over the country are doing. And, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Let's do it. Look, I mean, you know, I would imagine I see responses to your social media commentary that people are up to their neck with it. People are calling it or deeming the pandemic to be over, even if there is COVID in the community, which there absolutely is. I know someone with it right now. Yes. But the conversation uh, is, even though we're talking about health and public health, the conversation becomes in many corners, if not most corners, simply exhausting. Yes, I mean, and it's unfortunate, but I mean, that's, that's you know, something we're going to have to deal with. Uh, being tired isn't going to get us out of the pandemic, which is still ongoing, regardless of, you know, I know Joe Biden months ago said that, you know, the pandemic's over and then recently switched all the rules that everybody has to be multiple tested and has to wear masks around him and and all of that stuff. Right. So there's a lot of contradiction out there. The World Health Organization is still telling basically every government on the planet to, you know, stay vigilant, keep doing the things that mitigated COVID spread. But it just seems like people aren't listening. And I understand the, you know, the fatigue that goes with, you know, uh, you know, uh, dealing with a virus like this. But, uh, you know, as uh, Dr. Hagee used to say in the early days of the pandemic, it's a marathon, right? And uh, unfortunately, more information keeps popping up that shows us that, you know, COVID is not a cold. It is not the flu. It is anything but mild. Uh, and I guess a lot of my advocacy is to uh, ask the government, you know, whoever is in charge of uh, distributing information uh, like that to alert people that when we thought in 2022, early 2022, that Omicron was mild, we were wrong. And that is flat out. I, I'll live and die by that statement. It's backed up by loads of data, loads of studies, lots of experts. Um, but since those those you know phrases were uttered on our news, the people of Newfoundland and Labrador have not been told otherwise. So we have a false sense of security for the people of this province who think that they can catch COVID over and over and over and over and it's not going to damage them. And all the evidence points to the contrary. So um, as advocates, we've been working uh, with other groups all over the country and uh, and we're we're asking for a three-pronged approach right now to deal with COVID until hopefully the day comes when we have uh, sterilizing vaccines, which are vaccines that actually, you know, have a high uh, efficiency in stopping spread. Right. Like you'd see with a polio vaccine. Um, so the three pronged approach is uh, masking in essential areas since uh, masking was dialed back in places like hospitals. And we were given no reason, no benefit analysis, no scientific data to back it up. And um, the other one is uh, upgrade to our air quality standards. So here in Newfoundland, a lot of our buildings are, you know, have outdated air quality 
uh, or uh, sorry, air filtration systems and things like that. And then the third prong of our, our request is education programs. So we were told that people needed to gauge their own safety with COVID and then they were given no information about it. So uh, since we were told to gauge our own safety, all of our uh, you know data, our information, all of those things have been dialed back to the point where we're getting once a month um, COVID updates from our government, which I think is atrocious. So uh, these are the things that we're asking for. Uh, we've emailed pretty much every politician in the province, all the health authorities, uh, and we've begun the process to uh, ask for these things. So. When it comes to gauging your own level of risk, isn't there some pragmatism attached to it? Because there are differences regarding your underlying health conditions, chronic or otherwise, or differences with age group, even though not to deny repeated infections is, no matter what people think about this, repeated infections is pretty, pretty much proven to be extremely detrimental to your long-term health. But so isn't evaluating your own risk even regardless of what we're talking COVID or otherwise, isn't that just part and parcel about how we proceed with COVID or anything else that might be airborne or not? See, uh, if you're going to evaluate your risk, you've got to know what the risks are, right? So if people knew the actual, so like I know you know, uh, you know, a bit about COVID, like I've researched it extensively. So I know the damages that are possible. So when you have people banking on, you know, I'm a healthy young athlete nothing will happen to me they're missing the you know the stories about things like the tour de france where some of the most highest level athletes in the world uh you know were hit hard by covid this year and they had to put in all kinds of measures to make sure the races kept going and they had lots of racers have to bow out because it just flattened them uh we're losing athletes all over the world world-class athletes to to you know permanent damage and it's not after four and five infections it's after like one maybe two um, it's really a roll of the dice, and this is what people don't understand. They're, they're thinking, uh, you know, I can I can get this, and I'll probably be okay because I'm young, or I'm I'm, I'm fit, or I eat healthy, things like that. Uh, but it's not a guarantee, right? So if if you're playing Russian roulette, uh, it'd be nice to know how many bullets are in the gun, kind of thing, right? And this is this is the problem. And I mean, we're seeing stories come out like uh, so the the. The NHS, the, the U, United Kingdom's uh, health authority, just changed the rules of blood donation. So if you have any lingering COVID uh, symptoms, so if you have long COVID, you're not allowed to donate blood. So to me, that's an alarm bell. Because ask yourself, Patty, what other, what other viruses can you not donate blood when you have been exposed to or have? They're, they're not nice viruses, right? Um, if you had the flu in the last six months, you could donate blood. Uh, if you had the cold in the last three weeks, you could donate blood. Uh, if they're telling people they can't donate blood because they have lingering uh, COVID virus in their bodies, to me, that's an alarm bell. That is something that we really need to go, whoa, right? Because um, we've seen this before, right? Um, so so with, with all these things in mind, if the government wants to claim that COVID is mild, they have to educate the people. You can't say, we'll give you the road conditions once a month to have a nice drive to St. John's. It's just, it's not safe. It's not practical. It's not logical. And it goes against pretty much all of their health regulations that, that have been in place for decades. And, 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 and I think that's the part that really baffles me the most is that they have these, these uh, you know, rules in place on how to deal with different viruses. And they're just not even going by their playbook. 
So it's very confusing, and I don't blame people for being like, you know, COVID's over because they're not given any information. We had our last estimate on wastewater was 1,300 to 1,800 cases. The the week before that was three to 5,000. Those aren't numbers that, you know, we should be like, wow, there's no COVID around. It's the middle of the summer. Hospitals are packed. There's loads of outbreaks. Everybody right now knows somebody who has COVID. What do you mean hospitals are packed? Hospitals are packed with COVID-related illness? No, not with COVID, with everything. And this, this is the, you know, this is the, um, this is the byproduct of COVID. Why do we have so much, you know, people sick in the middle of the summer? That's not something that's ever been, you know, regular for Newfoundland, Canada, anywhere. In the Northern Hemisphere, the summers are a downtime when it comes to respiratory viruses, all viruses. And now we just don't get a break. So if you drive by a hospital, I mean, yeah, they're always packed, but not like this. Not in the middle of the summer. There's not, you know, you don't see the, the posts on Facebook. Oh, me and the kids are sick again all summer, right? There's no break. And why is that, right? Because people just don't know. Uh, yeah, so so that's what we're working toward. Three-pronged approach to getting some, uh, you know, uh, updated information we uh air quality standards need to be updated ontario and new brunswick oddly enough are two provinces that are are moving ahead with the upgrades to air quality standards uh they're pretty much leading the way for the country they're going to be revamping their you know the regulations around you know the uh the air in schools and buildings all over their provinces that's something that we should you know we've followed other provinces every step of the way and during the pandemic uh, every time we got rid of different mitigating strategies the number one reason given was uh, because the other provinces are doing it so if the other provinces are upgrading their air quality which helps for more than just covid it helps for everything then this is something that our politicians really need to step up to the to the plate and uh, you know also take steps toward doing um it's you know yeah i mean air quality if you back uh covid out just forget it all together i mean we've had air quality concerns regardless if we're talking about a virus like covid19 or sars covid19 because i remember back in the day doing stories about air quality in schools so if we have an approach i mean air quality goes a long way to a variety of illnesses so it doesn't matter if we're talking about covid it doesn't matter if covid ever existed or not air quality and some pragmatic approach to improving air quality just makes sense i mean look no further than it's proven air travel is proven to be fairly safe why air filtration so regardless of what we're talking about now i did come home with the sniffles but that's more about air conditioning than it is anything else uh keith i appreciate the time thanks for the call no problem daddy thanks for having me take care bye-bye uh will i take stacy here on the heels of keith uh let's take a break stacy would like to react to keith don't go away welcome back to the program let's go to line number two good morning stacy you're on the air good morning patty morning to you how you doing I'm doing okay, thanks. How about you? Um, I've been better. Um, I actually was listening in this morning and your conversation with Keith, I really felt the need to call in when, um, I guess, the the topic of assessing your own risk came to the table. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Based on um, some things that Keith noted, um, the problem right now is education. And unfortunately, our health authorities um, are not educating um, people who are working in buildings about the risks of uh, COVID-19 infection. For instance, the majority of the health authority believes that this disease is spread through droplet form, and if you're six feet away from someone, you're not going to get it. Um, Do people still think that? 
people still think that. Um, I actually, the week that the masking mandate dropped in the hospital, I called um, Occupational Health and Safety within the province, and I was forwarded on to an IPAC, um, someone who's head of IPAC, so that's Infection Prevention and Disease Control within the health authorities. So I was given one of the main people's contacts for IPAC, and we had an hour and a half discussion, and she still kept on referring back to um, how hospitals are um, actually um, only taking those precautions if aerosolizing um, procedures are being done. And I, I tried to explain, well, it's already documented that aerosolizing procedures do not need to occur in order for, for the virus to float through the air. I said there's a study done right here in Montreal um, recently in the last like six months that demonstrated um, capturing the live virus and isolating it in the air two hours after a patient has left the room and there was no aerosolizing procedures happening in that room right so it's it's very well documented that it is but i mean if we don't have the head of infection prevention and disease control at our hospitals understanding aerosol transmission and talking to people who are working in the hospitals about that risk how can someone use um, their own risk assessment because that's what uh, nurses and physicians in the hospital right now are being told to use they're saying assess your own risk based on mask usage so how can someone assess their own risk if they don't understand the true transmission and and that's where the education gap is happening and there's people um, who are um, still nervous to go to hospitals, especially now. I'm one of them. Um, I have developed, well, we don't know if I had a predisposition, but I have developed an immune deficiency since my COVID-19 infection. It took three years to figure out what was going on. Um, I've done numerous interviews trying to ask for more education on post-COVID conditions and long COVID specifically, but there is nothing coming from our government regarding education, and, and that's a huge problem because um, we can only assess our own risk when we are in charge of our own safety. So if I'm put in a position where I'm incapacitated, um, maybe I was in a car accident and a paramedic comes to help me um, and I'm unconscious. So how can I assess my own risk when that paramedic is going to approach me without a mask on? When a virus that we already know is, is very dangerous specifically to myself, um, and they're going to approach me without a mask on. So my risk of infection, I may get more harm from that viral infection than I would if I didn't seek that medical care from the paramedic. So I think that's, that's the issue is that assessing your own risk is only in circumstances where you have the ability to do so. And a lot of people who are attending the hospital do not have the ability to assess their own risk because they're in there for medical reasons and they're in there to get help. And unfortunately, the people who are um, caring for them, not everybody, is taking precautions to keep them safe. There, it's a couple of things. Right off the bat, we should have paid way more attention to the social scientists because they talked about how messages are crafted, how people listen to medical advice, how people understand or apply science, what the mm -hmm. divisionary kind of approach taken by some governments with their commentary, because the message can be the message, but it's how it's delivered is the be-all and end-all. So the social scientists had it right. The second thing is, People, whether it's productive thinking or otherwise, is it was pointed to one area or another as the 
the panacea. Here's how we're going to control anything. When in fact there has been proven not to be one thing. It's just simply the case. Whether it be the vaccine, and there's, uh, look, I thought I'd be never be more sick of anything beyond Muskrat Falls, but the vaccines has won that argument. Uh, so that, social distancing, masking, covering your coughs and sneezes, air filtration, everything in combination was practical. No one thing worked, because when people figured out that not one single thing worked, then consequently, nothing worked. And because of it, it's been impossible. I don't blame public health authorities for being very wary of being all out like we were early in the pandemic. People waiting up with bated breath for the 1 p.m. every single day press conference with the announcement of the numbers. At some point, people got not only exhausted, but completely overwhelmed. So I don't even know how public health goes back to messaging anything regarding COVID. I have no earthly idea how that could be done. And um, I think the number one thing that and, and even if we're going to have essential areas not um, have masking, which which is exclusion from a human rights perspective, um, everybody has a right to safe health care. Everybody has a right to receive specific services or be accommodated in a way that they can. And I mean, I will tell you that since the mask mandate dropped, um, it has been jumping through hoops to exist in society. Um, I'll give you another example. I had medication for my cat that I needed to get two weeks ago. And we all know that transmission occurs uh, through animals to humans. At the very, you know, the very beginning, we thought that that wasn't a thing, but it's very well known, very well documented. The science is all there. Um, so I explained to the um, veterinary clinic that I had um, immune deficiency, and since the masking mandate dropped, I was wondering if maybe we could have my checkup first thing in the morning and all the staff wear the masks for the first, like, I don't know, 20 minutes or so while I have to go in for the appointment with my cat, because obviously my cat can't wear a mask, right? <laughs> so um, I was refused. They would, they would not put on a mask for me and basically said that, uh, you know, you, you can find another vet. <laughs> Um, I had to call Human Rights Commission, and they had to call that. Um, they had to call the actual veterinary clinic and let them know, like that they had to because this an immune deficiency is a disability. You have to find a way um, if you provide a service to accommodate that person, and you should not be excluded based on your disability. And I think a lot of people are unaware right now that if their businesses are not accommodating, because many are, I've had restaurants, restaurants have been doing curbside for me since 2020, right? Um, usually they've been really good. There's been a couple that people, you know, are a little bit less um, aware and, and haven't, but for the most part, everyone's been really good. Um, but there are certain services that can't be done curbside, right? And there, we need to find a way around that because people are being eliminated from society. And it's not just people that have um, immune deficiencies or um, known health conditions that put them at higher risk. It's also people who do not wish to take on that risk because they know the, the damage, that this virus can cause. So if you know the risks, it's really hard to put yourself out there and, and take that over and over if there are no ways to work around that risk, if that makes sense. I don't know. Does that make sense at all? It does. Uh, and I guess like everything else in this world, 
But assessing risk is, I mean, there's a reason why there's an actual profession associated with assessing risk, you know, an actuarial and other professions, that, that's what they do for a living. And they have a devil of a time getting it right, and they're professionally trained in that realm. So if I go for a bike ride this afternoon, assessing my risk depends on whether or not I have on a helmet, depends whether or not I'm on a trail or on a roadway or on a sidewalk or in the country or in the city. Same thing with everything else in this world. Assessing risk is something that people try to take on for their own benefit and their family and what have you. But it's an imperfect science, once again. So even if we try to apply the imperfect science of risk assessment to COVID, that's where I think it becomes a bit more complicated because your risk is different than mine. Mine is different from Dave's. Even though there's overlaps, there are differences that make it a tricky piece of business. So again, my thought is... I am so pleased that I have no role in trying to craft public health messaging because forevermore after this pandemic, that is going to be extremely tricky. You just wait until we roll back into seasonal influenza. Even just the conversation about the annual public plea for people to get their flu shot, that's going to become more difficult than ever before. Why? Because of the last two and a half, three years. Is there any coming back when we talk about public health and what public health actually means? I don't know. It's going to take uh, extraordinarily brilliant messaging for it to be anything but the obvious pushback that we see every single day regarding every single thing, especially inside the world of healthcare or science. It's been a strange topsy-turvy past few years. I know it's been... uh, my mind numbing in this seat anyway uh last yeah. uh, thought to you stacy before we take a break for the news yeah and, and again um you know when you mentioned like the bike riding and assessing your own risk um i agree like we all do that we all take choose like my the previous to my first covid infection um i snowboarded regularly right that that's a risk that i was taking for my health for my well-being um you know but the thing is when you look at healthcare, um, it's a basic human right, right? So being part of society um, and having those um, advantages, like we, we're not, we're in first world, world country, you know, we, we have those um, resources at hand, but being excluded from that based on your health, um, based on known preventative measures, that's another thing. I mean, if I were to go to the hospital and the hospital was not taking the proper precautions with hand washing or making sure devices were sterilized in a proper manner before my procedure, if I got an infection from that and it was proven that something wasn't done in the right way, that person is liable. So if I get uh, an infection from a hospital or, um, you know, a clinic where I have to go for medical reasons, then that that authority is liable, right? And I think that's not people, a lot of people are not realizing that. And, you know, especially elderly people who are going in for procedures um, regularly, they should be testing beforehand and documenting that because if they receive an infection in a hospital and then subsequently um, have damaged uh, other health issues afterwards, then then that hospital should be liable if they're not taking precautions to minimize the risk of infection to that patient. And who knows what precautions means there because there's no better place to get an infection than in the hospital. Exactly. Uh, and long understood. And this is pre-COVID. Uh, Stacey, yeah, I've got to get off to the news. Wear masks anyways. Exactly. I appreciate yeah. the time. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, infections in the hospital... <laughs> 
pre-COVID, that was long been a concern. Let's take a break. Orlu, stay right there. He wants to talk about, I've mentioned bicycling. He wants to talk about bikes. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Oral. You're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Doing okay. How you doing? Patty, I got another bike now and I'm rebuilding it. It's a giant. And if anybody can donate a couple of wheels, even 27 inches. Okay. I don't want to give out my number because, you know, when you give out your number, they'll be yadded phone now, they'll hang, I guess, right? Well, you don't have to. People, if they're so inclined to make a donation of 27-inch wheels, I don't know how common that is out there in the world of bicycles, but I don't think I've ever measured mine. Yeah, CCMs uh, makes them 27 and a half year, but 27 will fit, see? There's a couple of places where you might even be able to turn. I know people have been able to donate bikes to the city of St. John's. Uh, Ordinary Spokes is a bike shop. I know Rotary St. John's East had a bike program where they were getting taking donations of bikes and I think some bike parts, if I remember correctly, and distributing them around the community. So maybe call some of those uh, entities and see if they've got what you're looking for. Oh, and uh, I just want one more topic. I stayed in the building myself with poor air quality, but... Uh, the, the Lord knows the little things that makes the difference, right? So, you know, if the, if the window's open, it'd be better air quality. Anyway, Patty, uh, yabba dabba do, and thank you very much. <laughs> no, no problem, Fred. <laughs> hey, bro. Thanks for the call. Yeah. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Uh, yeah, so I don't mean to put the St. John's Rotary East on the spot or anything, but they were indeed taking donations so it might have included whether it be helmets for adults and for children and the full bicycles and or parts for bicycles who knows i know the city of st john's was accepting donations on bikes i threw ordinary spokes in there i probably should have checked that before i blurted it out but i think they were also in that business all right uh, very quickly and again this is the gentle reminder that it doesn't matter what I bring up or any listener brings up. If you think it's important, you can bring it up. There was a couple of emails throughout the course of the morning uh, wondering why we have stopped talking about one issue or another. And in this case, it was oil. And one person went on to say, you know, the concept of uh, ExxonMobil and the Hercules drill rig out in the Jean d'Arc Basin, the FFAW complaining about lack of consultations in prime fishing grounds and a 500-meter buffer around the rig and all that kind of stuff. Even though that's well offshore, I don't know how many crabs licenses are executed that far off our shores but the beginning of the email regarding oil was you know people think and ruling that it is dead well certainly nothing i've ever said but their concern was that there has been some recent quote-unquote good news if you're an oil industry participant have a job reliant on the oil industry and what it means for the provincial coffers okay i get it exploration has a big spin-off in jobs and of course we know what the implications of production means so I think the good news they were talking about, even though they didn't uh, itemize it, was some of the most recent comments coming from the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer of Equinor, in a quarterly call, was talking about Beta Nord. You know, we'd last heard from them, really bizarre timing, during the middle of the Energy NL conference, where there was a lot of optimism regardless. And it wasn't simply about oil and the potential for gas, but all the energy generation opportunities here in the province. And so they said during that conference that they were going to shelve the project for upwards of three years. You know, immediately that was, well, the project's doomed. Even though it had been given the final green light by the uh, federal government, 
And yes, Stephen Guibo has said very clearly it's going to become more difficult in the future to get productions, uh, production fields greenlit by the feds, but still the opportunity is there. ExxonMobil thinks it is because they're paying money, even though with a $50 million subsidy, to explore this year. So yes, uh, I can't remember the man's name. It was Wrighton or Reichman from Equinor. He says basically what they've done is try to restructure it because the initial price tag, which was around $16 billion, uh, now it's much more than that. So says the CFO of Equinor themselves. So they're trying to find ways to lower the cost and to, I guess, optimize the project itself. Now, we are never going to know all the inner workings and the conversations between the province and Equinor. Because there are some complicating factors. So he seemed quite bullish, and he said the project is not doomed. They're still quite optimistic about the future of Beta Nord. It's a huge find. Now, Equinor and other oil companies have said quite clearly, only the very best projects will proceed. And what that means, I think, is that only the most profitable projects will proceed because they're all seeing what the world is thinking and doing. Many of these big oil companies working on different revenue streams simply beyond the traditional of producing oil and or gas. So this fellow from Equinor thinks that it's not doomed. They're still trying to restructure it to make it make more financial sense to the company. One of the complexities that I'm pretty sure has got to be part of this conversation is for the first time in history, uh, the implications of the United Nations Law of the Sea and Article 82, where because it's outside of our economic protective zone, there are going to be hundreds of millions of dollars paid by somebody to the UN, whether that be the province or the feds or the company itself. I would imagine there's cost-shared discussion happening on that front because if you're Econor, you don't want to pay all of that out of your own profits. If you're the province, remember the province said this is a federal responsibility. The country signed on to this particular uh, United Nations article, not the province. The, pro the federal government and other political onlookers said that that was quite petty. But you know full well, inside the world of billions, concerns over hundreds of millions is not is not no is not noteworthy or pardon me it certainly is of concern regardless of the party that's discussing who's going to foot that bill and has never been done before so we may indeed have cookie cutter approach to benefits agreements and royalty regimes and potential equity stake which the government still says they're pursuing for any future production fields offshore but yeah it, anyway it's not a conversation we're not happy or willing to have something i had to bring up this morning but if that's something that inside of your crosshairs or your ballywick you're more than welcome to join us let's go to line number four good morning Corey. you're on the air on the day, sir. that's kind how about you uh i'd just like to bring to something to attention like um uh the marine landing is an extension of the uh transcan highway so as extension of transcan highway why do i need a reservation to cross marine landing i'm here waiting now for a week to get on the ferry because i gotta have a reservation like, I've talked to several tourists as well, and they told me, oh, I'd like to stay another week, but I can't get a reservation. Like, it should be a first-come, first-served basis. Doesn't that pose more problems than it does solutions, though? It would pose more problems. You show up, you get in line up, and when the boat leaves, they load the boat. But isn't the scheduling of travel makes travel a little easier if the schedule is adhered to? So if I want to travel on 
uh, Friday the 4th of August and I made a booking at the beginning of July, I know I'm going to have to show up. I don't have to take my chances, drive in the wee hours of the morning, get in the queue and just cross my fingers and hope because it's also the implications on the other side for your rental car or for your hotel or for the Blue Jays tickets or for whatever it is that you're going up for the wedding or the birthday party. So I guess that's why people think that reservations gives a bit more certainty than just cross your fingers hoping for the best. But it is a guaranteed service, so it leaves at the exact same times every day. So when the boat leaves at 11.30, if you're there, you get on the boat. Why would you hold up, as an as a, as a extension of the Trash Can Highway, why would you hold up somebody that wants to travel that route? I guess because there's more people than spots that would like to travel throughout the course of, say, the month of August. No? Yeah. Like if I have a booking for an Airbnb and they have a no refund uh, policy and I get in the queue, but I miss a boat. I get in the queue and maybe miss two boats. And so while while I'm sitting on the wharf, I'm also paying for uh, accommodations that I'm not even living or, or staying in. So I think there's complications on the other end of your travel that maybe reservations might be more helpful than not. But that, that won't happen. You won't miss two boats unless you're not there. Like, the boats are big enough to accommodate all the traffic. I suppose, unless you have a couple of days of weather, because we see that all the time, too, right? Uh, that's another That's another thing. Uh, when they get weather, say if you're booked on a Friday night, okay, and the winds come up, they then bump those reservations to the... They don't bump into the fouling boat because they got reservations for that boat. So then those people are bumped to the boat uh, the, further away again. Yeah, and they try to clean up the commercial traffic is important as well, yep. Oh, no, not only commercial traffic, but if you got a reservation for Friday night and the boat don't sail Friday night because of wind, I've actually seen where those people wouldn't get across till Sunday because they would take the reservations for Saturday morning when the boat did sail. I guess I get your point because I don't have to make a reservation to drive from here to Clarenville, right? I don't have to make a reservation to drive from Toronto to uh, Ottawa. So I get where you're coming from, but I think just imagine the aggravation of sitting there and add in complications of weather add in whether or not i'm in the queue to get the boat that i'd like to be on as opposed to make a reservation and if the weather accommodates i get on the boat that i booked passage on but i suppose i don't know what kind of anarchy we might have if there was no reservation system because it comes complications too with the commercial traffic right they make reservations for very distinct issues commercial traffic don't make no reservations Commercial traffic has a huge implication as to the usage of Marine Atlantic and OceanX. Of course it does. Yes, it do. But what I'm saying is commercial traffic can't make a reservation unless you pay double, and then there's only very limited spots. You roll in, sit up dock, and you wait your turn. So knowing what we know about how people travel on Marine Atlantic, you say you've been sitting there for a week trying to get on? I call. I called down there uh, today. Today is uh, Thursday. Thursday. I called down on on Sunday on Saturday, on Sunday to get a reservation. I got a truck and a trailer going across. Uh, I wanted to take across because I'm doing the job in Nova Scotia. I wanted my pickup to go on the same time. I couldn't get a reservation for my pickup until the 9th of August. 
So I'm going over there to do a job in Nova Scotia and can't get my pickup crossed. And now one time we used to be able to go down there and have a commercial. You could go down there. If you were commercial, they would let you go in the commercial lineup with your pickup truck because you were doing business in Nova Scotia. And then they completely stopped that as well. Okay. So when did the job in Nova Scotia came up? It was last minute? I got businesses over there. I go back and forth there all the time. Oh, I see. But what I'm saying to you is I should not have that reservation to travel to TCH. That is an extension of the TCH as well as any any person that wants to. If you're, if you're today and you and your wife says, you know what? They're going to give me a week's vacation. Now, I think we'll go to Nova Scotia. Oh, no, we can't get in Nova Scotia because we can't get no reservations. Fair enough. Why can't you just leave St. John's, drive down there, you know the boat leave at 11.30 tonight, get in the lineup for 11.30 night, when the boat leaves, get on the, uh, get on, get on the boat. I call, I call uh, Bay Ferries. Bay Ferries do operate on a reservation system. They prefer you to have a reservation system. Reservation. However, you can pull up to the dock, and the person at the dock will make a reservation for that day's ferry. That's what the lady told me from Bay Ferries. I call BC Ferries. They do not run out of reservation system. You pull up in the lineup, and that's the lineup you go right aboard the boat. Ride. I don't know why they're so stern on reservations at Marine Atlantic. I suppose they might have some thoughts on the matter. Maybe Daryl Mercer would like to give us a quick tutorial on reservations and the need for on Marine Atlantic if they don't do it on other major ferries. I'm happy enough to ask them the question. Even if they had so much okay. space there, for to give you that commercial, if you if I go stand there and I shows them that my, uh, yes, I'm going over North Sydney, I'm a commercial uh, business, I should get us, I should be allowed to go in that commercial lineup because the commercial lineup is a first come first serve basis. Or if they had so many waiting spots, like say if you showed up and uh, oh you didn't have reservation, but oh we, we can put you on a waiting list, we take so many from a waiting list each day. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. Last time I used it was a long time ago now. I haven't been on the ferry since I actually drove everything I had that I owned from Alberta to here when I moved home in 2000. I got there before my reservation because I just drove as long as I could every single day because I just wanted to get home as quick as I possibly could. I got there before my reservation, but I got on the very next boat. So I don't know what has changed between now and then, to be honest, because I remember that quite clearly. I thought I was doomed to sleep in my vehicle, which was a U-Haul, in the vehicle for at least that one night because I was a full day ahead of my reservation, but I got out on that boat not long after I arrived. So obviously, or maybe, something's changed between now and then. Yes, but if you if you come down after you are, they may have switched you from uh, uh, your reservation and said, well, we'll put you on as commercial if you came there in a U-Haul. Yeah, I don't know why that would be commercial traffic, but all the same. I don't know why they do what they do, but if someone from Marine Atlantic would like to send me a very brief email about the rationale behind reservation versus first come, first serve, we're happy to take it on. I wish you safe travels. Good luck on the other side, Corey. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, well, I guess there's capacity issues on ferries, none on the TCH. Before we get to the break, let's go to line number two. Steve, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. Good morning. I just wanted to quickly call in and confirm what you were uh, saying about Ordinary Spokes. They are a community-run bike shop, and they do offer, uh, it sounds like they would be able to help this gentleman who called earlier. 
Okay, great. It just popped out of my mouth. <laughs> then I thought, yeah. well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But yeah, no, they they, they uh, they're a great organization. They actually started in a basement, uh, and they're still going ten years plus strong. So uh, I I am not involved, but I know for a fact that uh, if you go there, they've got shop hours. Uh, they're on social media on the internet. They got all their info on there. But yeah, they got shop hours. You can go in. A bike mechanic will help you work on your bike and bring your own parts in. They have parts for people you can buy, complete bikes, all the whole thing. So, yeah, there you go. You're yeah. right. You're I, correct. I thought so. I'm glad then I, that I did say it because I'm familiar-ish with the history of Ordinary Spokes. So yeah. when I mentioned Rotary East and the city of St. John's, they're doing it for different reasons as opposed to how Ordinary Spokes was born and the role they continue to play. Steve, you were involved at the Origins, weren't you? Uh, yeah, in the origins. Yeah, they, uh, they. I was never a person that was involved in ordinary spokes, but they started in my basement years ago. We used to have punk shows in our basement, and we also had a bike shop, and that's where they started. Love it. Love the story, and I'm glad I was on point with referencing ordinary spokes with that gentleman's needs. I appreciate the update, Steve. Anything else before we say goodbye? No, that's it. Have a great day, everybody. Man. You too. Have a great day, Patty. You too, bye. buddy. All right, bye-bye. Last break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Ron, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. Uh, I know you're up against the clock here now, so I'll make it as quick as I can here. So uh, um, I was waiting a year to make this call. Uh, I was down the regatta yesterday. I don't know if you recall. You got a lot of callers. Last year, $7 water at the regatta. I remember. At the beer tent. Same deal. Uh, the only other information I got this time, I phoned the brewery last year, and um, I think we might have mentioned this, or I might have mentioned it last year. Uh, the only reason I went to the beer tent to see what the price of the water was this year. Last year I went there because I was going down there, but and the same thing, same as the, same as a bottle of beer, seven bucks for two bottles, and that's what I was like, <laughs> only one at one, you know. So there's, there's no option. And when I phoned the brewery last year after we get and asked about it. They said they were up against it because NLC regulates the prices down in the tent and everything. And I said, come on, buddy, give me a break on that. Well, you're like, you know, it's like, don't tell me that. The NLC regulated the price of water in the beer tent? No. I, I, I was going to say. I, I don't phone NLC. I don't think they do. That, I'm saying that's what the manager told me of the brewery. They're, they're regulated by NLC. That's what he referenced out. He didn't say that they regulated the water, but that's the impression he gave me. Yeah, because, I mean, that's just an add-on for the obvious reasons, because some people might be going to the beer tent because their whole crew just rode, some want a beer, some want a water, you know? Yes. So they yes. offer water as a way to quench your thirst on top of getting a beer if that's what you're... But I don't mind spending three fifty for the bottle of water, but why do I have to take two for seven if I only want one, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a head-scratcher. I don't know why someone needs two bottles if they only want one. And well, if you got a friend with you, whatever. But anyway, but as a footnote to that, down on the, the bar I went to on George Street... When I identified myself, now I didn't identify as a DV at the beer tent. I was going in to buy a bottle of water. Okay, it's cool. The only reason I went this year to see what the price was. Uh, down George Street, which I was at, I went in the bar, went up, bought my buddy a beer, uh, and uh, bought a beer and a. And I did identify as a DV, and he only charged me for the beer and not the Dodge Ginger Ale. So you identified as a designated driver. At at uh, George Street, I did. Got it. And and the ginger ale, the Dodge ginger ale was free. They didn't. They, well, the, the bartender that served me didn't charge me for it. But then I left the bigger tip, so you know whatever. So you know. So I don't know. 
you know, it, it, it just seems like a gouging thing going on down the beer tent, like, you know, whatever. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know, I'm going to have to start drinking, maybe, I don't know, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't do it just to avoid getting the two for the uh, two bottles for the seven dollar price tag. Uh, I appreciate the update, Ron, and I'm sure. Look, I mean, everywhere you go, when they have a captive audience, the prices are obviously going to be worse or more than they would be if you had the option of going from one pub to another. In, for instance, the George Street setting, they got you right where they want you. And consequently, there goes the charges. I yeah, I get that. Like I, I go in the bars, I do drink. I'll go into a bar downtown, I'll pay $12 for a double, I've got no problem with that. Like, you know, I'm out drinking, I'm being, you know, whatever. That's all good, right? You know. And, but, you know, $7 for a bottle of water? No, really. For, for a major, major sponsor thing, you know, buddy on the hot dog cart is not charging that much, right? So. That's right. I appreciate the update. You've had the last word. Okay, well, thanks so much. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Ron. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, good show today. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.